Hello and welcome to this Random Wrestling Review bonus episode where today we will be announcing the first nine inductees to the RWR Match Hall of Fame. Last month we assembled a panel of 12 which included all of our hosts and a number of our regular listeners and presented them with a list of 40 matches that we covered on the pod during 2021. Each of the panel was able to vote for up to 10 of the matches in the list. The rules were simply that if 50% or more of the panel voted for a match it would make it into the Hall of Fame. If not, then it would be carried forward to next year's vote unless it didn't receive any votes at which point it would fall off the ballot. What we're going to do today is announce all of the results including letting you know about the matches that received no votes and therefore will fall off the ballot for next year. So we start with the first inductee and it's from SummerSlam 1990, a match between WWF Tag Team Champions at the time, Demolition, and the number one contenders, the Hart Foundation. This was voted for by six of our panel and so makes it through by the narrowest of narrow margins. So yes, this next match is for the tag team title. It's a two out of three falls match. It features Demolition defending their belts against the Hart Foundation. So this one is 14 minutes in length. The first fall goes the way of Demolition when uh, Demolition hit their finisher and pin Hart. Uh, then the second fall is won by the Hart Foundation, as you might, imagine, uh, might imagine, when Brett hits the Hart attack, but Crush stops Hebner from making the count, which earns Demolition a disqualification to make it 1-1. One, one, one. And then the end, one of the stipulations of the match is that Crush and Smash have to be the only members of Demolition at ringside. There can't be all three of them. But halfway through the match, Axe does run to the ring and hides underneath it, which is probably the best bit of commentary by Rodney Piper during the show because he protests that Axe isn't actually at ringside. He's underneath the ring, which is not the same as at ringside. Um Axe and Smash then switch places, which allow Demolition to take control. But after a tilt-wheel backbreaker from Crush, Anvil gets in the ring uh, to try and break up a pinfall. This means that the referee then attempts to stop Anvil getting in the ring, and Axe and Smash then double-team Bret Hart outside the ring until Legion of Doom come down and fish Axe from under the ring, get rid of him. This causes a bit of a distraction, and then in the ensuing melee, Bret Hart tucks down behind one of... uh, Is it Crush? And yeah, then so. Anvil does the shoulder barge over the over the ropes and allow and Brett rolls him up for the pin. They become the new tag team champions. Big pop. Everyone's very very yeah. happy. Bit of a bit of a busy ending. But how do we feel about it overall, Tom? I mean, a 14 minute long Bret Hart match is always going to be good in my books. I did feel a bit sorry for poor old Axe because knowing how much of a bad back he had at this stage in his career, making him go underneath the ring <laughs> seemed particularly harsh. And make him get back out. It's quite good. I, I quite enjoyed it. Like as I said, I, I'm always going to. But once a couple of bits I did like the bit with Brett outside playing possum, although not really acknowledged, but he was because I know what it looks like when Brett's playing possum. Was was great. The Heart Foundation always did quite cool double team moves. Like there's a bit where Anvil kind of gets Brett Hart from the second rope. He's Brett's like on the second rope and Anvil grabs him and like body slams him onto one of the members of Demolition mm. like backwards. It's, it's quite a cool spot. The heart attack's a really cool finisher, yet so basic, but it just looks great because when Brett comes off of that clothesline, it looks like he fucking kills him when he does it, which is amazing. And apparently Vince McMahon made the Heart Foundation do that to him in a strip club once. And he yes. probably took his head off, apparently. I've always quite liked Demolition, despite the fact they're incredibly basic. They've never been great workers, and so they really thought they'd add a real fucking workhorse to it by adding crutch to, to, the, uh, <laughs> to, to the lads as well. 
this is really good. The wrestling's great. It's going to be Broward's in there. So you you know you're going to get some good stuff. Anvil's great in this. I think Demolition are great as well. I love the the old switcheroo. Absolutely love that. As much as I enjoyed the match, I, it felt like it was kind of plodding a little bit until that point. I kind of was like, oh, how are they going to get to the finish? And I thought the finish was much easier to follow than it was for you lads who put an absolute shift in explaining it. And I just thought this was great. Crowd lap it up. No, I agree with you, old man. I think this was really good. And I'm, I'm really happy that you um, acknowledged everyone because I thought everyone really did well yeah. in this match. I thought everybody contributed really well. Even, dare I say, Crush. Even Crush. You know good. what? He bloody was as well. Yeah. And uh, I thought... He must have been living separate lives, like from when he was wrestling every other match apart from this one. I remember this being a a good match, and then thought, oh, is it is it going to be good though? It's still demolition. Let's not get too carried away. And <laughs> it's 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 really good. It's a really fun, enjoyable match that goes 14 minutes. Get gives you everything you want. I'm sure Brett had a large amount to do with plotting it out and pacing it and yeah. all that stuff, but everybody does their job and it's just really good. And and the Legion of Doom do add to it. You know, them coming out, yes. the crowd get really excited and then they perfectly transition to this feud between Legion of Doom and Demolition, which would ultimately really be the end for Demolition. I know that they did appear at the following year's WrestleMania, but they really didn't do much after that point. They've obviously added Crush by this point, not because of an injury to Axe, by the way. It's because he had developed an allergy to seafood and had gotten ill at one point. And Vince was worried it was going to happen again. So he brought in a third member mm. of the team. Really strange thing to bring yeah, in. Yeah, it's, it's very specific, isn't it? It's 30 fucking problems, mate. And also, obviously, the problem was, was Crush was known for carrying bags of seafood with him wherever he went. <laughs> I bet he was, because he was trying to steal his spot, I'd imagine, all the way through. <laughs> and then he acts, um, left the company not long after the following year's WrestleMania. And he was then in a long dispute over the trademark to the demolition team because it was his original idea but wwf ultimately owned it because he worked for them whilst he made the idea and so it was just a long protracted fallout between the company and and bill ed okay before we announce the next inductee just a little plug to send you in the direction of our back catalog where reviews of all of these matches and many many others exist if you've not gone through our archive yet you will be missing out on something that you'll be interested in as we have covered shows by wwe wcw ecw aw tna awa nwa and nxt that have taken place all the way back to 1984 right up to this year Now we move onwards and our second inductee is another match that managed to get six votes and so just about earned its induction to the first Hall of Fame class. One of the most brutal matches from one of wrestling's most famous nights, Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka revisit their classic rivalry at ECW One Night Stand 2005. Then we get Michaelson versus Masato Tanaka in the next match. Joey Styles talks a lot during this match about Michaelson leaving ECW and the circumstances around that. The end of the match comes when Olsen powerbombs Tanaka through a table at ringside from the ring and then dives down himself on top of Tanaka for the victory. And after the match, just for good measure, Olsen then powerbombs the referee too. (laughs) Oh, I fucking love this match. This match is eight beers down, get the network on, watch this fucking match. And it's weird because because it's so fucking mental right from the beginning. 
right from the beginning, they're like, do you know what? We're not fucking around. We're in people with chairs and going through tables. So, a couple of things. Joe Styles ranting about Mike Awesome is very tiresome, especially the fact that he said when he tries does a suicide dive and says it's a shame he didn't take his own life, yeah. which is very unpleasant considering that Mike Awesome did take his own life a few years later. Again, Joe Styles didn't know that at the time. Again, this is the value of the presence of Mick Foley there because I think he stops Joey Styles from saying some really mad shit. Also, I'm glad they acknowledged the fact that Mike Awesome had an incredible mullet. Which he doesn't at this point, but it's just a nice callback to the mullet. In terms of the actual match, there's a horrible, awesome bum off the apron through a table, which looks like it lands right on Tanaka's neck. Um, Tanaka takes some brutal chair shots then, and then hulks up, and then gets taken down by a clothesline. <laughs> the anti-ECW gang are sarcastically enjoying it from the top, but I think the JBL's actually loving oh. it. It's yeah. amazing. Then there's a bit where they go to do an awesome bomb spot and then Tanaka reverses it into a DDT off the top rope through a table. Mike Orson then awesome bombs Tanaka through the broken table. Yeah. And it is so dangerous. Yeah. Because not, not only is that type of powerbomb from the top rope, because it's not like a powerbomb going forward from the top rope. He has to jump backwards and get him up and down in time without smashing his head against the turnbuckle. That's one thing. Then there is a broken metal kind of beam from the mm. table, which is sticking up, which misses Tanaka's head by about two or three inches. And it looks so dangerous and it's terrifying. Bizarrely, the awesome bomb out of the ring through the table looks considerably safer than that. <laughs> um, and then the splash onto him for good measure. Fuck off. I'm it. You're out. And then, yeah, completely unnecessarily powerbomb in the ref. <laughs> Love it. Oh, it's a mental, a mental match. Absolutely fucking bonkers. Yeah. It's it is. It's exactly what Tom says. When they're walking to the ring, you know immediately what you're going to get. And they don't all back on each other. They're happy to do what they're going to do. And to be honest, as much as I'd like to go, oh, a bit dangerous, a bit dangerous, a bit extreme for me, it's tremendous because they're both in it. And they both know what they're doing. And Tanaka, Tanaka's neck is almost as big as Bobby Lashley's shoulders, I think. <laughs> His neck is absolutely enormous. But yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, one note on the mullet. Joey Styles says mullet weird. I think he goes mullet, mullet. Like he's saying Gert Muller. Or, or Muller Rice. Yes. Oh, Muller Rice, what a weird thing. This match is, is I mean, it's undeniably entertaining. Uh, it is very, very good. And and I guess this is where I was trying to go with the whole, after I talk about the Benoit match and the potential for this to be a disappointing show overall, or not disappointing, but overrated. It pulls it back here because this match is far better than I thought it was going to be. I thought we were going to get exactly this, but I thought my reaction to it was going to be different, if I'm honest. I don't know how to explain it better than that. And it is a really... It's mad. It's completely mad. The only thing that pulls it back from me a little bit of being really enthusiastic about it is that, as you said, Mike Awesome does commit suicide a couple of years after this match. Now, Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka had had this match, the match that they've had all of their career effectively against one another. They've been building this match and, and making it what it is for years prior to this. They were feuding in FMW in Japan. They were feuding in ECW. They had the match again and again and again. And this was just a repeat of that. But that meant that Mike Awesome and Tanaka took those unprotected chair shots as they do during this match over and over and over again. Mm. And it's very difficult then to disassociate the Mike Awesome suicide from that because we know that that kind of brain damage 
does occur as a consequence of these chairs and we mm. do know that these things do lead to depression and various other things and i'm not saying that they are intrinsically linked they may not have been linked at all but the chances are that there was some factor in that and so for me that's the only thing where i'm drawn back where ordinarily i can completely distance myself from the two for some reason here because the chair shots are just so unprotected and so brutal they are as hard as they possibly can be mm. to elicit the greatest amount of ah from the crowd that it is difficult then to not watch them with that kind of mindset of this actually happened to this guy and he was part of it and he was happy to do it he was consenting i'm not saying anyone forced him to do it this is the match he's built up with this guy over the course of their careers but still as a consequence of that this is what comes of it it's it's more difficult to enjoy as a consequence Mm. so did you manage to have a wank afterwards or (laughs) (laughs) well i had to leave it for a good five minutes or so Um, to to be fair you're a better man than me because i i had one immediate the second the referee was power bombed <laughs> you no, climaxed no, I... at that point, didn't you? <laughs> oh, on that. <laughs> Sorry, that cowboy's there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> on the referee power bomb, it's not a very nice looking power bomb. I don't think my neck would have taken it very well. When you see these power bombs, you start to think that WW, uh, WWE, sorry, probably had a point about him being a bit dangerous. Yeah. Was awesome his real surname? <laughs> no, I don't believe. I don't believe so. Uh, his Michael real name, Alfonso. Michael, and he was uh, he was cousin to Hulk Hogan's nephew Horace. Ah, oh, beautiful. You'll also be pleased to know that Masato Tanaka is still wrestling at the age of forty-eight, still going, still having matches all over the world. Hang on a second, he's forty-eight now. Yes. How old yeah. was he then? How, not, not forty-eight. <laughs> 32 he was 32 yes. in that match i'm so glad Fuck you said me. that tinky <laughs> that, that is earthquake-esque in terms of old <laughs> before your time fuck me as i said at the top of the show all of the matches on the ballot were covered by our podcast during 2021 and all the matches that managed to attract at least one vote will remain on the ballot next year so next up i'm just going to give you the list of those matches that were included on the ballot who managed to get just one vote and therefore will be eligible for inclusion in next year's ballot there are seven of them and they are steve austin versus ricky steamboat at wcw's clash of the champions 20 steve austin versus mark merrow in the first round of the king of the ring 1996 the opening match of wwe summerslam 1997 the cage confrontation between mankind and triple h the main event of WCW's Halloween Havoc in 1998, Bill Goldberg versus Diamond Dallas Page. The triple threat match from WWE's Armageddon 2008 between Edge, Triple H and Jeff Hardy. The main event of NXT TakeOver's Fatal 4-Way, which saw Neville, Tyler Breeze, Sami Zayn and Tyson Kidd go at it for the NXT title. And John Cena versus Kevin Owens at WWE Elimination Chamber 2015, which was Kevin Owens' first match on the main WWE roster. Now, I'll be revealing the votes for the other matches that were on the ballot as the show progresses, but let's get back to the inductees. And the third inductee was a match that was supposed to be Mick Foley's last from February 2000, his infamous encounter in the Hell in a Cell with Triple H. This was the final match that made it through with the lowest number of votes possible with just half of our panel voting for it. And as you'll hear from the clip I'm about to play from the episode where we covered this match, our hosts were split on it as well. 
we finally get to the main event, the Hell in a Cell match for the World Championship between Triple H and Cactus Jack. Uh, if Cactus Jack loses the match, Foley must retire. The end comes after about 23 minutes, 24 minutes of action when Triple H is about to be pile driven onto a two by four ca- covered in barbed wire and on fire. I should mention they're on top of the cell at this point. He manages to backdrop him onto the cell and, and Cactus Jack goes through it. And then Triple H needs to pedigree at Grimm when they get back in the ring in order to put him away once and for all. Tom, your thoughts on this one? I quite liked this match, if I'm being honest. It was a bit over the top and a bit silly at a point. And there was one spot in particular that I, that I, I was very like, oof afterwards and there's a spot when cactus jack is climbing up the cage and uh triple h basically stamps on his hands and he falls off the cage and through the table and whilst that's not as high as the spot in the previous match with the undertaker he flies off the cage he is about two mils from landing headfirst on a chair behind the commentary desk and if he hits that then god knows what could have happened to him because it's so close and so dangerous and that made me feel uncomfortable triple h at this stage i've never been a big a huge triple h guy i think i've kind of let my own kind of internal biases against triple h maybe taint his matches but triple h is absolutely phenomenal in this match his selling his believability of being absolutely terrified of cactus jack despite the fact that he's beaten him the previous month is 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 amazing i think in the match itself they do a great job of really putting over foley i think all of the offense from both people are good the bit the bit with like the the, the two by four being set on fires is, is a bit silly but it's it's still quite fun and a bit of a bit of a novelty um the spot at the end i'm a little bit unsure because what they think they've tried to do is they've tried to replicate what happened in the previous heaven cell when foley goes through the top of the cage and whilst they they do it to an extent it doesn't really quite work for me i really like a pile driver as well i know you don't see it and there's a there's a very valid reason why you don't see a pile driver anymore and i completely understand that but that it happens in this match another move that also happened quite a few times in this match and also in the Rock Triple H match, it's a side Russian leg sweep. You don't see anymore. Yes. Move that just doesn't doesn't happen anymore. So promo video was a lovely trip down there, Marina. It was wonderful. This was a story I was very invested in when it was happening. I can still see in my brain when I think about it when uh, Foley brought back Cactus Jack on SmackDown and the cell job that Triple H does of it is unbelievable and to touch on what tommy said like triple h at this time is just so he's such a prick like he is so believable in everything he does and he's also got the hair his hair sells better than most wrestlers (laughs) because he just throws everything so it really exaggerates what he has um i wasn't a massive fan of the match i think it's Unfortunately, like we've touched upon with the crowd, I think all I think all this match is, and in hindsight was always ever gonna be, was a couple of really big spots, which we get with the one that Tom mentioned where Philly comes off the side and then going through the top of the cell into the ring, making the imprint in the ring, effectively breaking the ring. It just feels like they're kind of plodding along to get to those points. The pile driver on top of the table is quite impressive, although quite horrible to watch, to be honest. The crowd don't ever go with it, I don't think, because they're 
thinking the same as me. They're just waiting for the big spots. They, they kind of bubble under and you kind of feel like the match is going to get going when Kachishak throws the steps and they break the cell when they're still in the cell. When they bring the cell down initially to start the match, Kachishak is talked previously that he's going to basically throw Triple H off of the top of the cell and Triple H has obviously got someone to put many padlocks and many chains around the door of the cell. Yeah. So you, you're kind of taking that away, which I think in hindsight is a mistake because while the commentators sell it, if I was in that crowd, I probably wouldn't have a clue, to be honest. Yeah. That, that that was a thing. And I just, it just didn't really hit. And also you've got the big spot is going through the top of the cell and then there's Triple H gets down and he's rightly pleased with himself. He's playing the heel and he kicks one of Foley's arms onto Foley's body. And then there's a lovely pop where Foley raises his other arm. And you think, here we go. He's not done for you. Triple H punches him, pedigrees him, and then it's done. And it's a bit like, okay, so, yeah, why did they kind of have that not be the big thing? I I can completely understand that you want to end it on a finisher. I can completely understand that. But it kind of felt a bit stupid. And just watching it away from the whole program and the whole build that they'd got to, watching it as a standalone match, I just don't think it's very good, to be honest. And I think it's quite a poor end, in theory, to a career i think i think they they work their absolute socks off but there's there's nowhere they can go and also they've just had the street fight at royal rumble 2000 which is incredible and this doesn't it doesn't come close to to matching what they did there and i think looking back at it in hindsight they were never going to do that because it's so good well that that royal rumble 2000 match is brutal as well it's like it's it's pretty violent i mean they go into as about as as extremely violent as they have have ever done basically in that match i thought this one i thought was good i actually thought it was a good match i thought that there will be some smart people who turn around and say this is a better match than the match they had at king of the ring 98 and i think that that's a it's probably true in terms of technically it probably is a better match but it, it's completely missed the point of that king of the ring 98 match which is that that is a piece of art that isn't really just a wrestling match that's a piece of ultra violent art that nobody saw coming like it wasn't like this match where prior to the match they build it up and mick foley says he's going to throw triple h off the off the top of the cell they say it's clear he's going to do something mad because it might be his last match if he loses of course and it's back in the hell in a cell which in which he had that match with the undertaker but back in king of the ring 98 like that wasn't how that match was sold that match was just sold in the same way as every match between the undertaker and mick foley was sold which is this is going to be a hellacious battle between two demonic characters and they're going to you know have a really a really great match again but it wasn't like we're going to throw this guy off the top of the cell and we're going to throw him through it whereas this one that was what it was sold on this match was sold on the concept that you're gonna see foley do something mad you're gonna see mm. him potentially try and kill himself so i think it was a good match but i do think it's very valid that that's what everybody's waiting for and so the 20 minutes before or the 15 minutes at least before that stuff happens there's just this sense of come on come on let's get to the let's get to the end and that's just the feeling i got from the crowd all the way through the show just come on get to the end i want to see when mcfoley attempts to kill himself which is a real shame because i thought as i said they worked hard as you said sorry they they worked hard 
I did think it was a good match. I thought the two by four being set on fire was just another visual they wanted to give people to sort of up the ante again because there was no way Foley could perform what he performed at King of the Ring 98 the same way. It just wasn't going to happen like that initial fall in particular i think is whilst he says you know it wasn't as bad in terms of injuries as the second fall that one is in particular i think just so dangerous that the the tumble over the top of the cell down onto the announce table below the the amount of things to your point tom where in this match he could have hit the back of his head on the chair for example that is entirely possible during that king of ring 98 match but with there's a whole lot less control over the spot it's just a lot less controlled and and this time as well triple h kind of the backdrop through the cell again much more controlled they even as you say they've kind of rigged the ring to sort of collapse so that it breaks his fall a little bit but having said all that i remember watching it at the time live when it was actually happening i can remember being in my parents living room and watching this play out in front of me and i did go mad for the final spot and when i watched it again this time i still got kind of a a rush of adrenaline like there was in the build-up to it quite an emotional and quite tense feeling i thought because you knew he was going to do it but at this point you were in the bit of the show that everybody had kind of been waiting for and it did feel tense and it did feel dramatic and you were kind of even though i knew what was going to happen i still was kind of like well how am i going to feel watching this and so i still give it i still think it was a good uh, match and i still think it was a fitting end to foley's career probably about as good as you could hope for given the anticipation for what people were building up in their mind about what foley might do to top what he'd done 18 months previous so next up i'm going to list the six matches that managed to get two votes from our panel and will also be on the ballot next year if you want to become a member of our hall of fame induction panel let us know by messaging us on twitter or facebook at rwr pod uk is how you can do that and we will include you when the process begins in 2023 so the six who got two votes were the rock and roll express versus the heavenly bodies from wwe survivor series 1993 Two matches from WCW Spring Stampede 1994, those being Lord Stephen Regal versus Brian Pillman and Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. Steve Austin versus Owen Hart for the Intercontinental title at WWE SummerSlam in 1997. Kurt Angle versus Edge from WWE Backlash 2002. And finally, Chris Benoit versus William Regal from WWE No Mercy 2006. On with the induction then, and our fourth match to make the grade is the first of two that received seven votes from our panel. It is also one of two matches that make it into the Hall of Fame from WrestleMania 19. Shawn Michaels against Chris Jericho, another bout that despite making it through the voting process, didn't get universal praise from our hosts when we covered the show in April of last year. So the match is Shawn Michaels versus Chris Jericho, and Michaels wins after Jericho attempts a belly-to-back suplex, but Michaels rolls all the way over the top and then rolls Jericho up for the pin first off i want to cover the entrance because what i always find really weird is i don't know why they do this but they have someone with a normal entrance go first and then someone with a really long entrance go second because sean michaels has got his little um little kind of cannons with confetti in that he's he's firing out two of which don't work and what is amazing is sean michaels's indifference that he puts them so he fires one off it works fires another one off goes to fire the third one and he's like don't worry he's like there chucks it down to the ground fires another one at works goes back to the next one and it don't work again and he's just like <laughs> pretending to cry as he puts it down on the floor and then he grabs the last one and he's there going please please work <laughs> please and it fires it off and it works that's quite entertaining but all the time 
Because Jerko's just stood on the turnbuckle, just watching for ages. Well, the alternative, of course, is what they had during the Undertaker Big Show A-Train match, which is that the Undertaker has this incredibly elaborate roll-in by Limp Biscuit entrance, and it lasts like four or five minutes, and he's got his motorbike and everything. And then Big Show and A-Train come out to Big Show's theme tune and just waddle down to the ring. (laughs) It just doesn't really follow it very well. But it always comes back to me. I always think back to that (laughs) The, um... Triple H versus Sting match where Sting just wanders down to the ring and then there's about 45 minutes of fucking Triple H dressed up like the fucking Terminator and all, <laughs> and all that shit and he comes down to the ring and it's like Sting's first match in WWE like a big an absolute legend and he's just waiting for Triple H as he's fucking dicking around dressed up like the fucking Terminator well not even like the Terminator like one of the robots like one of the skeleton yeah. robots it's madness anyway the, the match itself is very good but going on I want to quickly fast forward everything to the ending the way you described the ending I was watching the match and I was like I've seen this match before but I can't remember too many of the too many of the details about it and uh, <laughs> I was watching it and I was like oh that's an interesting shoot penny combination Shawn Michaels is going for it this late stage of the match I've never seen a match end like oh <laughs> I, was, I was literally thinking I've never seen a match end of that and that's a three count there we go yeah the match is great like it's, it's really I mean it's one of the best wrestlers of all times and Shawn Michaels so I mean <laughs> you've got yeah you've got like there's there's all this stuff about like Chris Jericho like imitating Shawn Michaels moves going for the switching music constantly trying to get him in the walls of Jericho it's just a very very good match it's not the best match on the card but it's extremely good I think it's very good I do not think it's a classic because what struck me when I was watching it, it's very good. I'm not doing the match down at all. But I think I touched on this last week with Michaels. He's having a match with himself. And this is no disrespect to Jericho because he play, he does his heel stuff incredibly during this match. But Shawn Michaels could be in there on his own. And he'd probably have had a decent old match of it, I think. <laughs> You'd say that Shawn Michaels is having a match with himself. Everybody tag team with God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, lovely. Amazing. The bit with what Tommy touched upon with Michael's coming down with the confetti guns and taking ages. I love the fact that Jericho is just staring him down the whole time from the turnbuckle. I actually really, really enjoyed that. But that was kind of also where I realised that actually Michael's is just happy to be there and he knows he's going to go in and he knows he's going to have a great match. And obviously, like, up until um, a year or so before, maybe didn't think that he'd have a proper WrestleMania match again. So he just looks happy. And I feel like it really detracted from the storyline. And, like, Jericho does his little bit where he does the nip up into the pose. And then Michaels obviously does the same and then beats him up. It's very good, but it's not the classic I thought it was. And there's a bit at the end where I think the commentary needs a note because JR enjoys this match, but he doesn't enjoy the fact that Jerry Lawler keeps mentioning WrestleMania the movie. This is the the first mention I had noted down. And uh, he's like, for God's sake, King, you're beating me up with WrestleMania the movie. There's the great bit with the kick of Charles Robinson into the ropes. Charles Robinson in his Billy Gunn face with his hair. (laughs) Absolutely awful hair. But I've written down, the match for me was a tremendous meal with a magnificent ball-kicking dessert. Because obviously at the end, they do the hug, and then Jericho kicks Michaels in the nuts. Just seemed a bit unnecessary, really. I just don't think they should have had the hug. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's I th- maybe the thing. Uh, yeah, they have the bit at the end. Kind of undercuts the whole Shawn Michaels mm. doesn't like Chris Jericho because he beats up women thing as well. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, willing now, I'm willing to now hug Chris Jericho because he gave me a good fight. <laughs> you um, won my respect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, just didn't. Yeah, it didn't really, just didn't quite work for me. I don't know whether it was because I was expecting a classic or that it was that I've seen this match a number of times in the past or it was because i've seen a number of things since that are more dramatic or hold more attention from the crowd or where they do more intricate things but that everything was just a little bit less impressive than i thought it was going to be all the way through the best bit for me in the match was what you mentioned old man the double nip up where jericho uh, nips up does the pose Shawn michaels and nips up behind him and i thought yeah great this this could and and that kind of put me in the mode of this could be a great match and then it just never hit that height of a real classic still very very good still very very good indeed just not a classic i thought and i was expecting one which maybe is part of the problem I guess ultimately, mate, Chris Jericho is always going to let you down, isn't he, TK? <laughs> he certainly is. And you know what? I really thought going into this match that this is this is the reason why I can accept some people think Jericho's a real, like a top tier legend performer because of these kinds of matches. Coming out of it, I was like, uh, maybe not. Maybe, I, maybe I'm still, uh, even in this sense of the thing, I just think he's just not quite as good as some people, including himself, think he is. Of course, the one thing we've completely glossed over with this match is Michael's terrible hair. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, his Bob, like Bob Michaels, is not <laughs> like it, it looked like he was trying to play He-Man, but realised he's not Dolph Lundgren. So he's had to give up on that dream. And then Vince has gone, oh, there's a WrestleMania next week, mate. And he's oh, my bloody hair looks stupid. It's all right. You'll be all right. And it made me wonder. There were years when he, cl- he clung on to his hair. Somebody I can relate to. And uh, how short did he cut his hair before? Did he just have it cut into a bob? Or was it shorter when he was on his hiatus? I don't know. That hair, basically from the SummerSlam in which he comes back, and then he also wins the Elimination Chamber, doesn't he? Match and uh, at the Samoa Series and then this. That looks to me like a deliberate haircut. Yeah. That's not that's not short hair that's grown up, but he's he's had it styled that way. He's like, do you know what? I want to be mistaken for a mum. <laughs> <laughs> Equally, I'm sure when we start watching some of the later matches of his career, we're going to be criticising the ex- extent oh my God. The the match against WrestleMania, I guess you had to take at WrestleMania is 25 and 26. There's a couple of bits that are actually stomach turning. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. So we're just about halfway through, and next we're going to reveal the matches that managed to get three votes from our panel. There are only three of them, and here they are. Vader vs. Davy Boy Smith in the main event of WCW Slamboree 1993, A Legends Reunion. The main event of WWE's King of the Ring 1996, which again featured Davy Boy Smith, this time against Shawn Michaels. And from ECW's Living Dangerously 1999, Rob Van Dam vs. Jerry Lynn. Meanwhile, up next, into the Hall of Fame, is the other match that received seven votes from our panel and is the only women's match to be inducted this time around. It is the collision between Sasha Banks and Bailey for Sasha's NXT title at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn. This is special, this match. This next match is special. It is 18 minutes and 20 seconds in length. It's for the NXT Women's Championship. It ends when both competitors are battling on top of the uh, turnbuckle and Bailey manages to hit a reverse run from the top and then hits the Bailey to Bailey to get the pinfall um i've skipped over all the stuff in the middle because i imagine that's what we're going to talk about next yeah well i mean what can i say this is 
this is just excellent. It is just a really, really excellent match. Tom, you wanted to guess at the moment where I looked up from my laptop the first time I watched this and thought, hang on, this is special. I think it's when Sasha Banks has got Bailey in the bank statement and Bailey's going for the ropes and Sasha Banks starts stomping on her hand. That is exactly the moment. That is exactly the moment. It's just absolutely fucking brilliant. And I, the number of times during this match, I had goosebumps. I was like, this is so good. Like, it's, the fans are just so in, like intently watching this match and so caught up in the moment about who's going to win and how this is going to go. This is not just a bunch of fans waiting to be entertained. This is a bunch of fans really caring about the result. And that is the whole point for me that even if there is a split crowd even if they don't necessarily always follow the baby face or always follow the heel the whole crowd are intent on this match in terms of i need to see who wins it i need to see what happens here and they play out just such a great match from the very beginning when they're kind of punching the hell out of each other right through the bits where sasha Banks starts working on bailey's hand and arm which then as she said tom feeds into the brilliant moment when the bank statement's on and bailey's trying to reach the rope and Banks starts stamping on her hand then she uses the other hand to grab the rope and at that point sasha banks kicks off the rope to almost reapply the bank statement and for half a second you're like it's over because she's got the bank statement on which is would be a perfectly like that's a finish that is a that is an established finish you know the idea that she's managed to re- reapply it but back into the center of the ring but in this occasion bailey manages to reverse it that's a major moment because the fans are like this is going to be the end it isn't the end they go through so many different bits there where, towards the end where you're just like this this could be the finish it was just as i say i had goosebumps nearly all the way through like multiple moments during the match and then the end where she does the reverse rana which it hasn't been done very much in WWE at all, but at this point, I'm not sure I'd ever seen it in WWE. I'd seen it loads of times in Japan and in independent promotions and stuff, but I'm not sure I'd ever seen it in WWE this time. And if I had, it hadn't been many times at all. They really hadn't done that move very much in the past. So to see it here was just one of those moments, just like, wow. Yeah, and then Bailey wins, and it's one of those... It's one of those moments. It's like the Ultimate Warrior beating the Honky Tonk Man kind of moment where they've won a match and everyone's happy. Everyone's really glad. After the match, they run through the highlight. And one of the highlights is when Sasha Banks jumps off the top rope and hits her knees into Bailey's kind of chest and shoulders. And they got the perfect camera angle for it. So it's absolutely about the move itself. But in the background, you can see Team Bad in the crowd. And Tamina is going out of her mind, like hoping, because she's Sasha Banks part of Team Bad, that Sasha's going to win. And she's like jumping up and down, like, go on, one, pin, pin. And, like, and it was like, she's either absolutely allowing herself to get caught up in this, or she's doing a brilliant job of selling the importance of this to her as a member of Team Bad. And I just like, to do that in the crowd is incredible. Based on experience of watching Tamina sell, I'm going to say that she actually got caught up in it, which is absolutely... Maybe. It doesn't, it doesn't make it any less impressive or brilliant. Yeah. But based, based on seeing Tamina in the ring, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But as I said, I was just blown away by it because it was just like, they weren't, as I said, the camera angle wasn't there to show Team Bad. They're too far in the distance. It's not, they're not focused on them, but you can see them. And Tamina is going out of her mind, hoping that she'll win. The thing that's not so great, and I'm not going to allow it to detract from the match, but I don't like the aftermath. So I don't mind Charlotte and Becky coming to the ring and celebrating with Bailey, even though during the promo video, we've seen them both attack Bailey at various times during the previous year. So I was a bit like, well, that's not quite right, but okay. 
But then Sasha Banks gets straight in the ring afterwards and shakes her hand and hugs her. And I'm like, no, that should not have happened. You've broken the wall, the wall of this universe. And I know that they're all friends and they want to have their moment. They can do that backstage after after the match. They do not need to do that here. I'm being unfair to other matches in that I'm not allowing it to affect my enjoyment of the match. Because really, that should have massively undercut what they'd just done, which is a really personal war where, you know, Sasha Banks has done that thing with the arm. <laughs> After all, like that that moment where she's stomping the arm, that should preclude them from doing anything like this after the match. It shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> they should never allow them to go there. But they just ignore what they've done. And it annoys me greatly that they did that. I know they wanted their four horsewomen moment in the ring. But I think it was a big mistake. I think it was a bad, bad move. But I, as I said, I'm not going to allow it to affect my enjoyment of the match because the match is is special for me. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it didn't, it didn't bother me that much. What did bother me, though, was how long it went on for. Because I could I could have done with Charlotte and Becky coming down to celebrate, Sasha Banks getting up, quick handshake, quick four horsewoman picture, and then the three of them, the three being Sasha, Charlotte and, and Becky Lynch, fuck off and give the ring to Bailey so that she can have her moment in the ring celebrating in front of them as the champion. And it's kind of, I felt like it meant that her victory was somewhat undercut because of the importance or the, you know, the perceived importance of, of the match, you know, and of the moment rather than it being about her winning the title. So I didn't mind it as much as you think. The, the only thing is I just wish it was a little bit shorter. So I hate this kind of shit. I absolutely hate it. I don't mind it here because I think it's with the benefit of hindsight as well, is that I think this is such a seminal moment in the company where you have got four women that would go on to just change women's wrestling in WWE pretty much forever, I think. So I give them a pass on that. And I also love the fact that Sasha Banks is still selling her neck. She's still holding her neck through most of it. They do have the little moment with the handshake and the cuddle. I can't hate it because I'm a big fan of Sasha Banks and Bailey in particular, but I can understand why people wouldn't like it. This is amazing, isn't it? Let's be honest. I think, Tinky, you've covered it wonderfully. This is, I think, I was having a little think about this after. I think this is the best women's match I've ever seen, like, ever. I don't think anything that any of them have done since have reached it. I think they've got close a couple of times. Like, they do the uh, Iron Woman match, I think it is, in the main event at the next TakeOver. And I'm an enormous fan of the Sasha Banks-Bianca Belair match at WrestleMania. But I think that this is just, fuck me. That's basically all it is. That's all I got. You know how I said something's not bad? It's good. Well, this is incredible, and that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you get matches, and then you get matches. Yeah. This is one of those matches. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly noticed throughout my um, throughout my note-taking of it, everything is pretty much focused on things that, like, Sasha does. But then I kind of, I, I was watching, I, I've always been a big fan of Sasha Banks, and I was like, I, I don't know if I'm just being biased, but it's it takes two to tango doesn't it is the old expression and the reason things look so effective and why these moments are so good is because of the way that bailey plays off against things that Sasha Banks does, which makes us so tremendous there's a bit of the, the bit at the beginning where you can see sasha banks is trying not to smile because she's evidently a big wrestling fan as we all know and is obviously feel, starting to feel the emotion of the match and thinking this is amazing and then she starts laughing 
and starts mocking Bailey. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those things, it's a great, it might not be on the cuff, it might be tremendous work from her, but that's what it looks like to me. She looks like she's there, about to almost break and like, like almost kind of tear up because, and then she switches and starts mocking her. I think that's a brilliant twist at the beginning of the match. One thing I did find odd about the match was hearing Sasha being referred to as a diva because she had gone up to the main roster at this point was still divas. And just hearing that in 2021 this felt a bit odd if I'm being honest. Yeah. Most of the things that, that I wanted to talk about have been have been spoken about by you guys in, in very good detail. But there's an incredible somersault dive by Sasha Banks at one point in it over the referee mm-hmm. onto Bailey, which is absolutely brilliant. The hand stuff, as you said, Tinky, is amazing. She gets her um, hand, takes a tape off of Bailey's hand, throws her in the ring, throws her back outside, wedges her arm into her hand in between the stairs, and kicks it, and it looks savage. It's just it, that stuff is brilliant. My favourite bit in the match is that submission exchange. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So the reverse runner that you were talking about, Tinky, I'm not a fan of that move in the slightest. Now, but weirdly, I don't mind it off the top rope. Well, it gives him a bit more space, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Exactly. I've seen people do it. I've seen, I've seen Sasha Banks take it in in a match like it on, on the ground, and it's terrifying because mm. it just looks like they land on the head. I hate it, but I don't mind off the top rope, so I'll give it a pass in this match. The biggest thing out of it, it you said it earlier about the Warrior beating a Honky Top Man. I'd even equate it to Daniel Bryan beating H then and then winning the title at WrestleMania 30. The 100% the right person wins the match, and that doesn't happen often enough, and it's rare. And it means so much more when it happens. Unequivocally, Bailey had to win that match. The idea of her not winning it is unthinkable. And I'm really glad they didn't try and swerve or pull a fast one over us because that would have done a disservice to what would have been a tremendous match. If Sasha Banks won that match by the end of it, it would still be an incredible match, but it would lose so much of the impact because Bailey has to win that match. Okay, if you have enjoyed today's or any of our shows on the pod that you've listened to, do us a favour and give us a rating or a review on whatever means you listen to this podcast. We do this entirely for free and in our own time, and so those reviews just keep us reminded that there are people out there enjoying what we do. Now moving on, there were five matches that managed to get four votes from our panel, and so I've missed out on getting into the Hall of Fame by not very much. They are the Midnight Express versus the Southern Boys from WCW's Great American Bash 1990, Randy Savage against Ultimate Warrior from WrestleMania 7, Bret Hart versus The Undertaker in the main event of WWE SummerSlam 1997, the triple threat match which headlined WWE's WrestleMania 30 between Randy Orton, Batista and Daniel Bryan, and the Chicago street fight between Tommaso Ciampa and Johnny Gargano from NXT TakeOver Chicago 2. Okay, three matches to be inducted into the Hall of Fame secured eight votes from our panel. The first of these is the match that saw Ric Flair overcome 29 other superstars to win his first WWE title at the Royal Rumble. Still to this day considered by many to be the best Royal Rumble match of all time, Flair entered in at number three and made it all the way through to the end to take home all the glory back in January of 1992. It is for the WWF Championship, it's not just the Rumble, and that's as a consequence of a couple of matches that Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker had had at the end of uh, 1991. The first one at the Survivor Series, where um, Hogan's the champion and loses the belt to The Undertaker when Ric Flair comes out, puts a chair in the ring, and Undertaker tombstones Hogan on it and 
pins him. The second match is at Tuesday in Texas. And uh, at that one, Hogan wins back the title, but again in controversial circumstances. As a consequence of all that, Jack Tunney stripped Hogan of the belt, declared it vacant, and then put the title up for grabs in this Rumble match. Let's get into the match, shall we? Because we've spoken enough about the build-up to it. The first two in the match are the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Um, DiBiase is clotheslined out of the ring by David Boy Smith shortly into the match. Any any thoughts on DiBiase's early early well, he, exit? DiBiase is intent on getting all of his moves in. <laughs> I, I think he's in there for like a minute and a half. He wants to get every ounce of DiBiase he wants to leave in that ring. Hopefully just in a metaphorical sense. And also the Bulldog sequined Union Jack that he comes down wearing is it's a good look. It's a good look. I think it's a criminal waste. Now, admittedly, he's getting near the end of his career now, isn't he? Is he is he in, is he with, with IRS at this point? Yeah. Are they money? He's getting near the end of his career, and I understand why they, he might not want to be in a Rumble match for a really long time. But one minute and 18 seconds is an absolute fucking waste of Ted DiBiase, especially when, if you think back, and it's only four, it's four years earlier, three years earlier, but the Royal Rumble 89 is he puts on an absolute clinic in that Rumble and ends up in the final two men with Big John Stud. And it's an absolute sham that he's out that early, in my opinion. The other thing I wanted to quickly say, he comes down with Sensational Sherry and there is the creepiest, perviest man in the front row with an airbrushed <laughs> Sensational Sherry t-shirt on with a sign that says Sensational Sherry worth her weight in gold and the look that he is giving straight down the camera is unsettling it is horrible so i i know what you mean like i get it it's ted dibiase he's a very talented guy we, we want to see as much of him as we can but i think this works really well i think it's a really hot way to get the the, the match off and up and running david boy, boy smith no matter what you want to say about his promo is incredibly over with the crowd, incredibly popular. This isn't even the UK, and he's like really over with the with the crowd. Him and Teddy Biossi have a really good two, you know, less than two minute, I guess, um, exchange of of action, and it sets up brilliantly for Flair to be number three because he goes out. Everyone's still excited. Teddy Biossi's walking out. As Flair walks in, you see them pass each other. I just think it works really well. I think it's a really, as much as you'd like to see more of DiBiase, I think if you're going to have him go out after less than two minutes, this is the way to do it with like just a really getting the crowd and the excitement off to a really good start. And I think it works really well. One thing that is really impressive as well, by the time Rick Flair comes down, is Bulldog's hair is gone. I know we fixate on hair quite a lot on the show. We do. Um, but his, his hair at this point, because he's got the braids, but he's kind of got this like curly mop on top. And by this point, it's almost like it, the top of it looks like Jules's hair from Pulp Fiction. And then he's got the <laughs> braids on the back and sides. Yeah. And it, he looks an absolute mess. I loved it. Like you said about when Flair comes down. My God, the heat on him is unbelievable. Oh, it's nuclear, the heat. I think if, if he wasn't Rick Flair, he would have exploded or possibly burst into tears it's hot like the crowd are gagging and beat him up and it's phenomenal so Flair comes out and he had been for the last sort of six months or so claiming to be the real world champion having left WCW as their equivalent of the world champion and actually taking the belt with him to the WWF when he first turned up Uh, after a couple of months WCW managed to get the belt back because they threatened a lawsuit and so as a consequence Ric Flair carried around one of the WWF tag team championships and they concocted the storyline of blurting it out of the screen every time he came onto screen to 
obviously not to expose the fact that it wasn't another world championship belt. Must have looked very odd if you're in the crowd yeah. and they didn't explain that. Yeah, ridiculous. I mean, you'd have thought as well they could have just fashioned a not very expensive replica of a of the same title or or just a different looking belt. Mm. It wouldn't have been very difficult for them to do. But no, just gave him one of the tag team belts. So Ric Flair comes out at number three. He gets press slammed by David Boy Smith over the next couple of minutes before out comes number four, Jerry Sags of the Nasty Boys. Um, and he's eliminated pretty quickly by a David Boy Smith dropkick. Next. Yeah, thank God he got out. They are, I realize the Nasty Boys are the second most unpleasing tag team to look at on this show. You've got the Bushwhackers in first place. And then purely because of their outfits, the natural disasters get bronze. The, the Beverly Brothers get fourth place just, but they get bonus points for the mullets. The thing that I did notice as well, I don't know about you boys, but the amount of times that Ric Flair spends up in the air and landing on his back in this rumble yeah. is ridiculous. He gets press slammed about four or five times. He gets mm. back body dropped a bunch. He is constantly just flying around in the ring. Yeah. But also, he, he infamously takes all of his backdrops on his shoulder as well. It doesn't yeah, even take him properly on his back. So he's, uh, it must have been, yeah, it must have been agony. Next up, number five is Haku, who we are told earlier in the show um, is a replacement for the other nasty boy, Brian Nobbs, who's got an injury. He comes out, oh. pile, dri- pile drives David Boy Smith, which is uh, a be- nice. It's a beautiful pile drive as well. Indeed it is. And then David Boy Smith throws Haku out not long afterwards. Um, it's a shame because I'm a big fan of Haku. Um, yeah. Disappointed to see him not last quite as lo- any longer than that. He's just a good worker, isn't he? And he's got a, he's got a killer mullet. Oh, 1992. What a year. It's no frills, which is funny because it's quite curly. But it's <laughs> it's a no frills. It's a no frills mullet. It's 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 not long. There's, it's not pretentious. It's just there doing yeah. a bloody good job yeah. for him. It's not what it would become later in his career when it's absolutely oh, gigantic. <laughs> no. Uh, number six into the Royal Rumble is the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. Uh, the main action of after he uh, enters the match is that David Boy Smith manages to crotch him on the top rope and uh, do their uh, a spot that the two of them actually do an awful lot when they face each other. It's something you very often see. In fact, I think he probably did it during the Rumble 95 that we covered a couple of weeks ago, where Shawn Michaels kind of is led on the top of the ropes. David Boy Smith kicks him and he kind of just comes down on the top rope. So then number seven is El Matador Tito Santana, which despite how much they try to stick to, they keep referring to him as Santana rather than El Matador because he's been in the company now for about 15 years. By this point, he'd won the Intercontinental Championship a couple of times when the Intercontinental Championship was genuinely important. You can't change someone's name who's been doing it for that long. You, you've just got a lovely pool of talent in the ring. You've got Flair, Bulldog, Michaels and Santana. Sorry, El Matador. And then, from memory, the Barbarian comes down next. Um, yes, you're right. Barbarian comes out next after a low blow by Flair on David Boy Smith and Santana flying forearm on Flair uh, after that. Barbarian comes to the ring. Uh, I've got no notes after this. And, and for me, this is the period of the match where there's a lull for the next mm. five, six entrants. We've, we've had the really quick start with David Boy Smith and Ted DiBiossi and DiBiossi's elimination. Then we got Flair in the ring. So everyone's really excited. Shawn Michaels is not long after that. Then we get Tito. And then things start to calm down for the next few entrants. Which starts with number eight, the Barbarian, which, old man, you've already made your feelings perfectly clear on. Tom, you obviously Scum. prefer this version of the Barbarian to the one we saw a couple of uh, couple of episodes ago. Yeah, but I still prefer the Powers of Pain Barbarian. I see. So well, maybe one day we 
you'll get to see those, your, your preferred <laughs> yeah. version of the Barbarian. In fact, we've seen the Barbarian also at the sold-out pay-per-view because he came out into the crowd with Haku. Number nine is Kerry Von Erich, which uh-huh. I think is part of this general lull. But there is a quite interesting exchange that he has with Ric Flair, which is probably lost on the majority of the WWF audience at the time because the two of them had, in the early 80s, had some pretty massive matches over the nwa world championship but by this point obviously Kerry von eric is um very very late into his time on this earth any thoughts on Kerry von eric there is a little bit of that i do feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity to be perfectly honest because they go in they have a very brief exchange it should have gone on for a little bit more longer and a bit more intense i i personally believe because it would have been a nod to those matches you know back in back in texas so I, in terms of his overall career, I don't have much on the Texas Tornado, to be perfectly honest, but I do feel at that moment it could have been built up a little bit more and played out a little bit differently. I just think the reason it wasn't is because it would have been lost on the crowd. I just don't think mm. this crowd were, were anywhere near aware of the, the history that they shared with one another. And I think that's the main reason it was just completely underplayed. But they still did it, which was quite nice, mm. I think. Well, and, and then after that, the big gun comes down, big repo man, who, from memory hangs around outside the ring and Bobby Heenan gets quite angry about it. <laughs> he's like, he needs to get in there. He needs to get in there. And Monsoon's like, no, he's being clever. He's being clever. I think, it's the other way around. I think it's the How other way it? around. Yeah, I think Monsoon's getting angry and saying he should get in oh. there. And Bobby Heenan's saying, no, he's doing the smart thing, which I think he's right. He was doing the smart yeah. thing. Does Superman's leotard have tyre tracks across it? As if he it does indeed. There? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange <laughs> sartorial choice. What's even odder is that getting run over isn't a thing that repo men do. (laughs) They repossess things. They don't get run over. And he's got like his jacket's got the outer of tires on it. I don't quite know what they were thinking. They were like, what do repo men do? Are they repossess things? Cars? Tires? (laughs) Yes. They I don't they... generally wear masks either. No. <laughs> no, no, which I completely forgot about. I think that's yeah. just a way to cover up the fact that he's smashed from demolition and they don't want people to... He will make up a smash. Yeah, so... but I guess that was just another another way of ensuring that no one recognised that he was smashed mm. from demolition. Obviously, it's not worked. <laughs> <laughs> up next, we've got uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine. This is such a nothing entrant into this rumble. I, Greg Valentine at this stage in his career, no one cares about it. There's nobody gives a shit about him coming down to the ring. He's already gone past. He's gone out of his rhythm and blues gimmick now, which was which was amazing. <laughs> and he didn't even get into like a slugfest. Like, can you remember the match he has with Ronnie Garvin at one of the early manias, is it? Or is it a rumble? I can't remember. Royal rumble. But it, where they just slap the shit out of each other. Yeah. He hadn't even got like that level of intensity about it. It's actually a bit sad watching Greg Valentine come down and be in this rumble. He is a little bit. Yeah, he has a little bit of a exchange with Ric Flair again. I think, I mean, that's the thing. Ric Flair has a little bit of a thing with everybody here. He has a go at everyone. Valentine, though, yeah, I mean, like, he was well past his best. He was 22 years into his career by this point and uh, had been a, an amazing wrestler in his past. But by this point, yeah, was definitely coming to the end of 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 a long career of of which he'd wrestled a lot of pretty high impact long matches similarly to flair i suppose part of the lull part of the lull in the middle middle part of the match ultimately Um, 
Okay, well, number 12 is Nikolai Volkov, who, when he comes out, is booed, which is actually a shame because he was a babyface at this point in his career, as uh, is testament to the fact that on his tights, you'll see a little motif of the Russian flag kind of crossed over with the American flag because he was now, obviously, Russia had come out of the Cold War. They were now a capitalist mm. society. And Nikolai Volkov, as the story went, had seen the error of his ways and had gone capitalist along with his country. And so um, he was actually portraying a babyface at the time, but he was booed which is a real real shame and also i should mention that volkov we learned earlier in the night was actually a replacement for marty Ginetti, which again is a really nice little touch i think the fact that they even were suggesting that they'd planned originally for Ginetti to be in this match but because of the barbershop window he couldn't be so i thought that was really cool but yeah there's not a lot else to say about volkov is there the one thing i do enjoy and i didn't realize that he was meant to be a face at this time because he does he gets booed quite enthusiastically by the crowd but he's still high-fiving people what a <laughs> lovely man what a lovely man <laughs> nice lad this is another guy who'd been around for absolutely forever you know like by this point he'd, he'd been wrestling for years and years and years his debut was in 1967 you know he, he was properly late in his career he's probably just happy to be picking up a paycheck quite frankly after Volkov came out we had um, Greg Valentine put the figure four on Ric Flair which was a nice little touch and Volkov himself was eliminated by the Repo Man and number 13 Repo Man <laughs> number 13 was a Big Boss Man who came in and uh, after his entrance we had a flurry of eliminations so Valentine eliminated was eliminated by the Repo Man so two in a row for for the Reaper Man, but he was then eliminated himself by the Big Boss Man. Uh, oh. Flair, Flair then eliminated David Boy Smith <laughs> and also the Texas Tornado. So Boss Man had come out and and already the the numbers were starting to drop. And I think that was a good thing because I think part of the reason this was a lulling match was there just probably it's just too many people in there. It was getting crowded and becoming kind of not really not not a lot of notable things were happening as a consequence. Yeah, definitely. And it leads lovely into the moment of the match as well, mm. which which I think we'll get to in a minute. Because I think at this point, Hercules pops down for a little bit. He does indeed. So out comes number 14, Hercules. An absolutely horrific man to look at. I don't know what, <laughs> he's not ugly. So if he's listening, it's not sure ugly. I think it's just, he's got this horrible moustache. He, he looks like an adult entertainment star. That's what he looks like. And the thought of him doing adult entertainment was enough to turn me off. Well, that's, no, that's no good for someone who's in that, that particular industry, is it? No, uh, precisely. I, I also hate to say to this old man, but um, I, th- I don't think he is listening because he passed away in 2004. Oh. I've got to be honest. Like I, I've done a very quick tally of this. I think it's about one in two chance that if you're in this Royal Rumble, you're dead by now. It's not exactly, it's a, it's a, a maudlin fault, but um, unfortunately, that is again a legacy that pro wrestling uh, unfortunately has. So after Hercules, Hercules comes out, we get Michaels and Santana eliminate one another as they're fighting with, with each other. Is that with WrestleMania 8 in mind, do you think? Yes, I expect it was. Actually, no, because Michaels was supposed to face Janetti at WrestleMania 8 at that time. That was before Janetti obviously had been sacked. So I don't know. Maybe they just maybe they just got lucky there. Then we had uh, Hercules um, throw out Barbarian. Flair then dunked out Hercules. And we were down to just the big boss man and Ric Flair, which ended when boss man missed Flair and was kind of dumped out by him uh, in the process. So then is this the is this the big moment you've been waiting for, old man? It's brilliant because Flair sells, and he probably is at this point, to be honest, he, even a man who goes 60 minutes every night, like he sells how exhausted he is. And then here he is, my boy, my favourite ever. 
Piper. <laughs> it is. Uh, just before Piper comes out uh, and Flair's um, taking the boss man out, Bobby Heenan declares Flair the winner and world champion because he's the only one left in the ring. <laughs> Which is genius. Like the noise of the crowd and the way that Flair sells it, and to his credit, the way that Piper sells it. Oh, it's unbelievable. I could, when I was watching it, I could remember watching it as a kid. Oh, it was wonderful. And again, this is a this is another again drawing on history. I mean, first of all, Flair and Piper had actually been in a feud in the latter half of 1991, but also this parks back again to the the mid Atlantic days in the early 80s. Piper and Flair were two of the biggest stars and would regularly face each other for the NWA World Championship. And they fought out of the ring, so they kind of went under the bottom rope and fought outside of the ring. Uh, and then Sleeper, hold by Roddy Piper, and uh, he then delivered an airplane spin to him as well, <laughs> which which kind of meant that Piper was on top to allow number 16 to come out, Jake the Snake Roberts. So we're really now starting to see some of the heavyweights of the show. Tom, where, where are you at? Are you back into it now by this point? Yeah, so um, everything you guys said there is is correct. It's amazing. It's at this point as well, well as well, where Bob Eden starts going into full meltdown mode, keeps yelling at people off camera to get him glasses of water <laughs> and stuff like that, and he's like, "You idiot, get me, get me a water." And it's just is brilliant. And I, I'll be honest, when it happens, I think you've got um, uh, yeah, Piper is kind of yeah, very much in the ascendancy with Ric Flair, and then when Jake Roberts comes, that came down, I couldn't believe my luck. Honestly, I was like, this is amazing. Now. This, is what, this is what I tuned in for. This is why we're watching this. And then it's just like the little things that make that, that moment so great. Just like Roberts gets in and you see the kind of the way that character worked and the, the kind of thought process and stuff that he put. And he gets in there, just sits down, sits in the corner. like, now you guys carry on. Yeah. And it's just those little kind of tweaks. And also, is this the first Royal Rumble where people start fighting outside the ring? Because I don't remember it really happening before this. Um, which obviously became like a thing, a big thing later on. You think about it, is it the 99 Rumble with Vince and Austin when they go out? And it's uh, this is the first in my, you know, they, they decide to start taking some of the action outside of the confines of the ring. Yeah, I think you might be right. I'm it's not entirely certain. Well, actually, no. I mean, in the 89 Rumble, there's a bit of that even um, with Hogan and Bossman and, and the one man gang, not one man gang, Akeem at the time. So there is a bit of outside of the ring stuff, even in the 89 one. Yeah, so Robert sits in, sits in the corner and tells them to carry on fighting. They do, and then Roberts attacks Piper as soon as his back's turned. Flair puts a figure four on, Rob, on Jake Roberts during this period. I've also written, uh, as you just mentioned, Tom, Heenan is absolutely excellent in this match. I think the thing that really sticks out, though, is just the star power that's involved in this one at this point. Uh, at this point in this match, we've already had Flair and Piper, two of the biggest stars of the last decade. We've had Ted DiBiase, Dave Smith, the big boss man. We've now got Jake the Snake Roberts in the match. We've got former Intercontinental Championship champions Tito Santana, Kerry Von Erich, Greg the Hammer Valentine. It's just full of name talent and name wrestlers who've meant something or mean something currently at this point in time which i get that the performances make this match but don't underestimate how important those those star powers simply because a huge amount of the royal rumble is the crowd reaction to who's next out of the curtain so it matters so much when the wrestlers come out and they mean something to the crowd and also how important the commentary is as well as we've said the star power the star power is a great thing but in the in a rumble match there isn't actually ever hardly any good wrestling as such and so the importance that one of the most story story storyline driven 
matches and it'd be so interesting i was i was going to but i couldn't be bothered i was gonna watch it again with the commentary off and see how it translates because so much of that and that's why Guerrero monsoon and in particular bobby heenan are so good in this because they sell the importance of every single thing that happens in the match indeed number 17 then is jim duggan who comes out this is perhaps a very mini uh, lull then for the next few entrants jim duggan's number Yay. 17 you get some, you get some, it gets a crowd interest, absolutely. But there's nothing much that happens in the ring for the next few entrants. Put it this way. Any comments for, about Haxel? He's just so over. <laughs> yes, he is. Over. He is so over. It's I can't really get my head around it because like his whole thing is just not really very good. But he's got the USA thing going for him, hasn't he? And he's got I his two by four. Yeah, yeah, which he fires like a rifle at a couple of people which is nice it's a simpler time it's a, it's a simpler time that I, I think that is absolutely right it's, it go, I would go back to the road warriors and i think jim duggan's another case of this present the wrestlers well and people will get behind them it's really that simple well, irs comes down big mike rotunda mm-hmm. bray wyatt's dad the heat he gets <laughs> i mean for a start there's the heat from the crowd and the heat from what he's wearing must be extraordinary because it occurred to me he's wrestling in braces, trousers, a shirt, a tie, what look like shoes. Pro- he's probably wearing socks as well. And uh, underpants. How hot must he be? Number 19 is a man we've already spoken about a little bit this, uh, today. Um, Jimmy Snooker comes out to the ring, gets a pretty good reaction from the crowd, as you'd expect from someone who, who, again, had been very important in the past of the WWF. Any any further comment on Snooker? No. OK, fine. Let's move on. Because uh, number 20 is The Undertaker, who immediately clotheslines Jimmy Snooker out of the match. And so... Have it, Snooker. We can move on from him pretty quickly. You can snuck a stiff on the bills for his missus. <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> uh, so, do they wrestle at WrestleMania 8? No, WrestleMania 7, they'd already wrestled at WrestleMania Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, Snook Snooker was way, way, way past his best as a as a performer by this point. That's probably why he was only in for a few minutes. Then we get number 21, which is Macho Man Randy Savage. And I thought this was really clever the way they brought him in, because just as he, he runs to the ring in pursuit of Jake Roberts, but Roberts cleverly ducks out of the ring and kind of hides for a few moments. as mm. Savage is then looking around for him, can't find him, which I think was convincing because I think the camera did the camera or the director did quite a good job here because you as a viewer we're like hang on where is jake the stick roberts he seems to have gone missing and then of course the minute jake roberts was caught up or or, or tied up with another another competitor in the match roberts then came back in and, and attacked savage thoughts on on randy savage oh it's just amazing i love randy savage oh, he's one of my favorites from the best ever um again it's it's weird i i Again, he's past. His, he's still very good at this stage, but he's, again, I think he's past his best, in my opinion. They kind of peaked around the, the beginning of the end is kind of at the end of end of his heel run, I think, with Sherry. But I I love Randy Savage, and he's just he's got these little these just little things that he does, doesn't he? Just the way he moves around the ring, the way he walks, the way he hits people with moves, the way he sells. He's just magnificent, and he's in the Rumble for for quite a while. And I'd be lying if I said he had a particular standout performance, but. It's just having Randy Savage in any match is always going to be a bonus for me. Yeah, again, another right. shot for the shot, another shot for the star power as well. We've got, um, you know, Randy Savage again, one of the biggest stars from the last ten years 
in the Rumble to add to all the other stars that we've got. The the one, and it's a very small gripe, really, because the commentators cover it pretty well, is that he leaps over the top rope to yeah. get to, to Jake the Snake, which, in fairness, the crowd don't, I don't think, the crowd, I think the crowd are so excited, I don't think they mm. notice. So it, it doesn't tarnish anything. And it's the kind of thing that if the commentators had ignored it, I would have probably just been like, oh yeah, okay. But I think they cover it quite nicely. Number 22 is the Berserker, who there's not a lot to say about the Berserker, except I think that he could have been a bit of a cult favourite, Berserker. I just the way, the way he sort of says huss all the time, over and over again. Yeah. I think in another promotion or another time, the fans would have been doing that along with him. I really think they, like if he presented him as a baby face, everyone would have been like, huss, 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 <laughs> along with him as the match. I think it would be great. I think it would be really good, especially if they did it every time you hit someone. You hit someone and everyone goes huss. It would have been, I think it would have worked really well. He'd be over at NXT. He would yeah. be. Yeah. Well, to be fair, unless he's dead, it's not too late. Um, well, I, you've got a 50-50 chance, old man. So. Yeah. Uh, you're in luck, my term, mate. At the, the spry young age of 61, he could still make his uh, NXT debut. 23 in the match is Virgil, who doesn't do an awful lot, unfortunately. Oh, um, thank God for that. He's bloody useless. Get him out. <laughs> this is old man's least favourite wrestler, I think, is Virgil. That's oh. twice, two weeks in a row, and he's absolutely slated him. He's just terrible. But again incredibly over yeah like obviously he's uh i don't know when he was feuding with dbrc well he was feuding with dbrc pretty much the whole time he was wrestling but they absolutely love him yeah his feud with dbrc had happened and mainly taking place over the previous year so yeah he was still pretty over from that 24 was um old iron sheik colonel mustafa who obviously was representing iraq even though he's an iranian um, in real life. And yeah, uh, kind of a leftover of WWE's attempt to cashing in on cashing in on the Gulf War. So another um, cynical attempt by WWE <laughs> to make money. But what it does mean is we have another former WWE world champion in the match. Um, in addition to all the others we've got. No, 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 we don't. No, we, don't. <laughs> we don't have another. We've got we've got. Colonel Mustafa in the match. Sorry, Never I apologise. Uh, at some point during this period, Colonel Mustafa is eliminated, but I didn't see how he was eliminated. And in 25 in the ring is Rick Martel, the model. God, old, man's, right. old man's favourite. So we've gone from old man's worst oh. wrestler ever, Virgil, oh, to apparently old man's favourite. So do you want to kind of wax lyrical about Rick Martel again? He's just brilliant. And he, he's wearing his pink garb. So the reason why I feel like I need to give the, uh, give the listeners... The reason why I love Rick Martel so much. So I used to collect, when I was a child, used to collect the wrestling cards, as I'm sure many of our people listening did. And I had a few versions of the Rick Martel one. So on the front, you'd have a picture and then on the back, there'd be some facts about them. So it'd be like their height, their weight, where they were from and their finishing move. Yep. And the picture on the card was Rick Martel doing a Boston Crab on someone. But he had his proper, like, the model Rick Martel facial expression. And I always loved it. And I always <laughs> always had a soft spot for Rick Martel since then. We all know and about your soft spots. You do. Well, to be fair, it wasn't so soft when Rick Martel turned up. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Bloody sexy bastard. 
And then 26 in the match is the immortal Hulk Hogan. Hogan comes in, clotheslines the Undertaker immediately, backdrops Berserker out as well, and then Virgil and Duggan eliminate one another also. I mean, I don't know what to say about Hulk Hogan, to be perfectly honest. That hasn't been said a million times before. Like, it's it's one of those weird things as well. But like I said, touched on earlier, but he's such a heel. Right? And we'll cover it at the end as well. But truly despicable man that everyone loved for some reason. But the, the tide's starting to turn isn't it i find a little this bit man. he's still quite over where you it's not quite the kind of it's not like the furore after over after hogan that there was before and they're starting to starting to turn a little bit i always kind of thought of him you get to like a teenager and you're like oh, i don't like that because it's popular and everyone else likes it <laughs> i think i've got this idea in my head of hogan being a bit shit but he's not you know he's what not. there's a reason there's a reason why he drew so much money and was and was so hot for so long he is genuinely a very good worker whilst he might not be the most technical kind of hand in the ring he can get the crowd going like very few in the history of this can well i think this goes back to what i would say about piper and the legion of doom which is that you don't judge hulk hogan on his ability in the ring or his technical quality in the ring you judge him on how good he was at his principal job which was making money and he's phenomenal at doing that and not only that but actually he's better in the ring than people give him credit for or he was capable of being better in the ring than people give him credit for um if you watch anything of his when he wrestles in japan you'll see actually he takes it up a notch because he knows that that's what that crowd needs him to do requires from him for him to be a major star there he knows that in america he doesn't need to do it he simply does not need to put himself through anything he doesn't have to put himself through any kind of physical physical difficult stuff he just he just does what he needs to do i think it's the mark of someone who understands the business very well now do i like him obviously not he's a a bit of a dickhead quite frankly uh, as a a person but you have to separate that from his ability as a person who, who ultimately ultimately understands the business as well as probably anybody has done over the last 30 years yeah the main thing that struck me was that he kept his t-shirt on <laughs> he did <laughs> and then um, when, when he eliminates the undertaker the undertaker immediately just rolls his eyes and goes uh, and then just walks back quite slowly and then playing into what tom was saying about hogan being an absolute shit in the rain he just starts choking people with his t-shirt choking anyone that moves but then that T-shirt does the rounds. It does. Later on, you see IRS choking someone over there. IRS, I can't remember at what point of this, but IRS is eliminated via his tie. Um, 27 is Skinner, which uh, caused old man some degree of pain when he found out that De- Doink the Clown, the second Doink the Clown, was this, this particular person. I actually felt quite bad for him. He's the only person I can remember in the match who doesn't get any reaction. <laughs> and I think... To be honest, that's probably why he's put where he is after Hogan, because they know the crowd are going to lose their shit when Hogan comes out. And they're like, we can't keep this up. So let's let's chuck Skinner out there. The alligator man. Indeed. Number 28 is Sergeant Slaughter and Skinner is eliminated shortly after that point. So Sergeant Slaughter comes in. We've got another former world champion in the match. Sergeant Slaughter obviously had been world champion in 1991 after uh, as part of WWE's Iraq War tie-in. Any thoughts on Slaughter? <laughs> any, any thoughts on Slaughter? <laughs> can, we, can we call it the, the WWF's tasteful Iraq War tie-in? <laughs> 
I just love the thought of them going to the like military and just going, oh, should we do a little tie-in? And like, what are you, what are you on about? Well, we got Slaughter. We're going to turn him heel. Yeah, do you fancy Spin-off, it? spin-off, mate. Yeah. A record spin-off. Um, and 29 is Sid Justice. I tell you what, he's over, but also, did you see? Did you see the fantastic nip-up that he does before yes. clothesline Ric Flair? Like, yes. It's, it's like, bloody hell, that is really impressive from a guy your size. Number 30, then, is The Warlord, or Steve Austin on steroids, as I like to call him. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's our lot. So that's the 30th entrant. Do you want me to run through the rest of the match, or have you got anything specific you want to say about Warlord? It's just a very odd choice to be at number 30, isn't it? And also, why did they split up the powers of pain? I don't get it. Yeah, there's a few weird state things there. You're right. Well, in terms of number 30 entrance, this is something that they did a lot back in the day. Like we spoke about, who was it? Crush was number 30 in the 95 Rumble. The year before mm. that had been Adam Bomb. They always seem to put out a really big guy at the end so that the babyface commentator can say this guy's going to win the match because he's the freshest and he's big mm-hmm. and therefore he's going to win um he's usually a heel as well it just seemed to be the way they did things and i guess warlord was the one wrestler they had left on the point of why they split up the powers of pain who knows who can answer that question yeah. right we got flair and hogan have a little bit of a fight on the outside where hogan suplexes flair um, on the on the mat outside, so he's taking more punishment, but he got up pretty quick. He didn't sell it for very long. Slaughter is then thrown to the corner at about a thousand miles. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> god fucking poor bastard! Unbelievable! Oh, brutal! It is absolutely one of the most brutal eliminations from a Royal Rumble you'll ever see. God. Hogan then hits a big boot on Flair in the ring now. Uh, meanwhile, Piper throws out IRS by pulling on his tie and throwing him out. Oh, you him. Hogan and Sid team up together to throw out the Warlord. And then Sid just nonchalantly pushes out Rick Martel and Roddy Piper are fighting with one another. Savage goes out after a running knee by Rick Flair. And then we were down to just... Sid, Flair and Hulk Hogan. Now, this is where kind of the story kicks in. So Sid throws out Hulk by sneaking up from from behind him as Hulk's trying to get Flair out and Sid throws him out over the top rope. Hulk Hogan's angry. He's not happy that he's not kind of won the match and he's arguing with Sid, which is allowing Ric Flair to um, recover. Hogan grabs Sid by the arm. Flair jumps up behind Sid, throws him out with with Hogan's help and Flair is the winner and world champion. Um, After the match, Hogan and Sid have to be held apart as they um, look to go after one another. What what stuff within all that do you want to do you want to pull out and and kind of talk about? I think that the end of it is an absolute shambles. If I'm being honest. Wow. Okay. I, I think I think that the the Hogan like Sid Vicious is there. Quite apologetic. He's there. Listen, listen, mate. I had to go. Every man for himself. You know the rules. <laughs> Get involved. You know what I mean? Don't don't buy a fucking ticket if you don't want to play, mate, or whatever weird variation of that expression you want. <laughs> And then he pulls him out of the ring. So that's a proper prick thing to do. And then rather than focusing on Ric Flair, now I know we get that amazing promo afterwards, but there's no time. Ric Flair doesn't even get handed the belt until later on. Like they make no... Considering WWE have got an amazing flair for kind of pomp and celebrations and circumstances and all that stuff, there's just none of that here. Instead, you get Hulk Hogan and Sid Justice arguing with one another and to no conclusion at all. And then you go backstage where you see that admittedly very good interview with um, Gene Oakland and, and when he gets given the belt. But like, if you're in the crowd, that must have been such a flat, disappointing ending. I think you got to remember, this is a time when WF didn't like to end the live show on a down point. And the down point of Flair 
celebrating with a belt at the end of the show as he was a heel perhaps wasn't the way they thought was the right way to end the show if they were going to give them anything to celebrate and i imagine what happened for the live crowd is that after they'd split up hogan and sid hogan then did a spot of posing in the ring for the live crowd to celebrate and you know do his usual posing stuff so i think on that count that's why they did it this way around because this as i say at the time Look at the Survivor Series that came a few months before this. Hogan loses the belt, but that's not the last match of the night. That's the thir- third match of the of the of the night, and the last match has got the Big Boss Man and Legion of Doom against IRS and the Natural Disasters, just so they can have a babyface win the last match of the show. And I think that's what this is about. It's just we need to leave the crowd on a high note, and they considered Hogan posing in the ring a higher note than seeing Flair with the belt in the ring. I get that in terms of perhaps wanting to put Flair over as big as you you possibly can. It's not the best, but I think it's for the benefit of the live crowd. And of course, they're setting up the WrestleMania 8 main event between Hogan and Sid. So there's a number of reasons why I think they do it. The thing that struck me is, uh, like Tom said, I, I hated it. I don't remember it being quite as bad as it is. Okay. And Flair looks so pissed off. Like he isn't even hiding it when he's walking back. He is glaring like he's staring a hole through Hogan like I, as he walks off yeah just left a little bit of a sour note and to be honest I didn't actually think the rumble match was as good as I'd remembered it it's controversial take I could see on your face you were scared to even say it out loud yeah it's it's very good in terms of a rumble match but I can remember it being like an hour whatever it is an hour and x minutes just Falls to the wall, which was probably the uh, the ignorance of youth. But like you said about leaving the uh, the audience uh, that are there on a bum note, left me on a bum note. Well, I mean, I I can I can understand it, but I think. One of the reasons people look at this match as being such a classic is that Flair interview after the match. Like, I think that is the iconic moment. If you see a picture on social media about, uh, uh, that's to, to show this match, you you show the Ric Flair backstage with mm. with with almost tears in his eyes as he as he's cutting that promo. And I actually think that that's what makes this match is the promo at the end almost is that because it's so convincing because he, he delivers it so believably. Um, and I think Heenan and Perfect also do their bit to make it kind of a really cool moment. So I, I completely understand why people would be disappointed that you don't see Flair celebrating in the ring after the match. But if he did that, you wouldn't get the promo. And the promo, I think, is what people really remember this for, or at least it leaves everybody at the end thinking, wow, that was a really good match, because he cuts that promo. Um, there is a, there's obviously the phenomenal mean gene as well, where he starts the interview and he goes, sister yells at someone off camera, you put that cigarette out right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. And I wish I knew who he was talking to. Yeah. And he's also given them the daggers afterwards as well. Yeah. Not just that yeah. moment. He's like, he's constantly got his eyes on them. Like as if, as if they're not doing what he said. It's really yeah. It's brilliant. There's, and there's a bit that I love in it where like, uh, so Ric Flair does his bit that is brilliant. You know, the tear in my eyes, the greatest moment of my life. And then um, Bobby Heenan does his bit afterwards as well. And then I just love the bit where Mr. Perfect goes, you know, I hate to say we told you so, but, and then Bobby Heenan joins in, joins in, even go, but I told you so. And it's amazing. It's really, really cool. They very much play their part. If you've managed to make it all this way today on what is in truth a cynical clip show, then I thank you and hope you'll stay with me for the final few inductions. Firstly, there was one match that received five votes and was just one away from making it into a Hall of Fame at the first time of asking. That match 
was the Undisputed Era versus Danny Burch and Oni Lorcan from NXT TakeOver at Chicago 2. Now earlier on I mentioned that there were two matches that made the Hall of Fame from WrestleMania 19 and this next inductee is the second of those. It was the night that Brock Lesnar almost hit the most draw-dropping move in the history of the business, the main event of the Showcase of the Immortals as Lesnar tried to regain the WWE title from Kurt Angle. So yeah, we move on to the main event, Kurt Angle versus Brock Lesnar, which is uh, 21 minutes in length. It's for uh, Kurt Angle's WWE title and finishes when Brock Lesnar misses a shooting star press. Angle goes for the cover. Lesnar kicks out. Lesnar then stops Angle kicking him, hits a third F5 and then gets the win with a pinfall. Oh, man, let's start with your thoughts on this one. We mentioned him early in the show. Taz's commentary in this match is excellent because I think this is very much where he's comfortable. He's calling holds and he also had some opinions on how it feels to be in certain holds, which I thought was very nice. Um, Michael Cole does a cracking Harley race impression at the start of the match. <laughs> where he's, he really, he's really gravelly. He's like, <laughs> I know on the belt, because I can't let this... The title belt is disgusting. It's a repulsive piece of shit. And I don't know what they were thinking. And I'd kind of forgotten how horrible it is. Something very strange came into my head when I was watching this match. I know where this is coming from, so I don't know how this will hit with you boys. But Kurt Angle is bold in this match. I feel like if he has his hair, it's not as good a match. (laughs) <laughs> in terms of the visual, because when he shaves his head, well, he's still got it. He looks like such a double-eyed bastard. And I think that that really plays in with the fact that Lesnar is a double-eyed bastard. And it's kind of like set up as this fight but wrestling match of two double-eyed bastards. Mm. And I know that feels like a really stupid thing to say, but it really hit when I was watching it. I was like, it would have been a very different. Is it just on that bit about the hair before you move on? Yeah. Old man, it is a very important point though. And an important part of angles transition to who he mm. was in the second half of his WWE stint. And then what he would be in TNA, because of course, when he came in for the first two, three years, he's comedy angle. He's the guy who kind of does all the silly stuff. He's a nerd. He's a geek. He drinks milk. He, you know, tries to fight for abstinence and all, all kinds of stuff. Like he's, he is the butt of the jokes. He's phenomenal. And he manages all, all instantly to make the main event, but he's still the butt of the jokes. He couldn't be the angle that he is here, as you say, with still with the hair, because he would still look exactly the same as the guy that was the butt of all the jokes. And the WWE, to their credit, used the hair as a way to transition him from that joke character to the hard Kurt Angle character by having him lose a hair versus hair match against Edge, after which he was shaved and then had the kind of headgear with the wig on for a bit. And then, of course, he was then able to be <laughs> and then he was able to be bold and just transition into the hard angle. And so I think it's a great point. It is very important to Angle's transition here. No, and I was yeah. thinking to myself, I didn't think I didn't necessarily equate it to the boldness, although I think probably subconsciously I did. But then I was thinking to myself, like, I love this kind of period of Kurt Angle's career, like coming down with, like you know, the, the almost like the Olympian kind of hoodie on kind of reminding you that, yeah, okay, he's got the gold medal and stuff, but reminding you that he is a fucking hard bastard. Do you know what I mean? Like, he had those comedy chops and he could do that, but when it boils down to it, he can fucking kick your ass. And the way that he is presented at this period in his career is 
it is phenomenal. It's just a great match, isn't it? It's just really well put together as well, Pace. There is a kick out by Angle of the F5 where, I mean, Mike Kira, big shout out to Mike because he sells this like he's going for three. He must withdraw his arm half an inch from the mat. It's absolutely incredible. And that tiny little thing just makes the end so much more satisfactory. Obviously, there's the shooting star press. Like, the note that I've got is, good job Lesnar has a neck like a chode, or else he'd have probably <laughs> broken it, because it's wider than it is long. It's it's what you'd expect. It's two guys at this point as well, incredibly hungry to show what they're about, to prove that they're the best, fighting for a world title in the main event of WrestleMania. And that really comes across if Austin and The Rock are comfortable with each other and know exactly what they're going to do to entertain, these guys are going out to prove that they're the best. I wondered, can I touch on the shooting star press? Yeah, of course you can. I think this that, that shooting star press shows the kind of Brock Lesnar, despite how incredible he is, is still so new at the time because he could have done that shoot and star press from any other turnbuckle and hit him it's too far away and we know that but if he just took a second to just drag him a foot across the ring like maybe he was told he had to hit from that turnbuckle the one that he does for aesthetic reasons because they were like well this is going to be one of the biggest things that's ever happened we yeah. need to get good ang- angles on it so when you hit it hit it from that turnbuckle because so, we've got the cameras all pointing that way but if he just took a second dragged him a couple of feet across the ring and did it and hit it, it would have been absolutely perfect. Like you, I've seen footage on YouTube and stuff like that of Brock Lesnar hitting a shooting star press in OVW like loads of times. So you know he can do it. It's just mm. a distance away because he has to put so much height into it to be able to get across the ring that he doesn't rotate enough and hence why he lands on his head. If he hit that move, then it would have been the biggest WrestleMania moment ever. And it would be discussed in this day and it would have changed the outcome and the way in which these types of matches are presented because people would have felt that they would have needed to have done that as well, I think. The issue as well that that made me feel quite uncomfortable at the end is watching how fucking out of his head he is and knowing how much of a bad way Kurt Angle was in that match and after that match. The fact that he goes over and he basically props Brock Lesnar up to get him on his feet. And there's a camp, there's a zoom in between the ropes of him as he's as he's trying to get up and he's just fucked. And it's it's quite uh, an uncomfortable watch. It's uncomfortable. But at the same time, I think at the time was a relief because it meant that it wasn't his neck. That was the problem. It was that he's mm-hmm. concussed. It's weird because when I I remember I did watch it live and I remember seeing it and being like, fuck, has he just broken his neck, basically? And then you see that he's just out of it and you're like, okay, he's okay, His neck's okay, He's just got a concussion, which I know is very serious, but probably not quite as serious as if he broke his neck. So like it just it almost a relief, which is really odd to say, but it, it kind of almost is. The shooting star press. Interesting, really interesting, because I do agree with you, Tom. I think it's historic in the fact that he missed it. If he had not missed it, if he'd have hit it properly, I think you're right. I think it would have changed pro wrestling potentially because you've now got the guy that already looks that looks better than everyone else just by standing still, okay? He's been in the industry. He's been in the WWE for less than a year at this point. He's he's had, had a bit of a career before that in OVW, as you say, but in terms of his WWE career, main roster career, been there less than a year. He's won everything. He is a phenomenon 
like he's massively popular and now he can do this as well um and we know angle can can execute an incredible moonsault so you basically got the two toughest people in wrestling who are arguably the two biggest stars in wrestling at the time as well who can also do the most impressive aerials in, in in the business what is there left to do i mean what is there left to do if he hits this this shooting star press it's just out of this world on the distance so i think you're right i think the distance is the problem but not because he can't physically do it but because it puts doubt in his mind before he does it if you watch mm. it again he hesitates just before he does it and it means his bounce that he gets off the ropes isn't as high as it could be as it as it potentially would be if he hadn't hesitated and i think if he doesn't hesitate he makes this no problem at all even with the distance it's just i think you the distance is the problem but not because he can't do it but because it puts the doubt in his mind that he can and therefore me- means that he hesitates and then doesn't doesn't make it so i think if brock lesnar had hit the shooting star press i think this is an absolute stone cold classic and is top of my list of things to talk about if someone's asking about the best match in wrestlemania history Without it, it doesn't quite hit it because ultimately it is a botch. I mean, you can say it's an incredibly impressive one, but it is a botch and it is the final moments of a dramatic world title match. And it does detract from the overall quality of it. Still a very, very good match. Still a great match. And interesting what you said, old man, about Taz and his commentary, because I said earlier on, I wasn't impressed by Taz at any point during the show. And I hadn't noticed this good commentary, but I can well believe it because ultimately this is interesting in that this is the first time I think WWE flirted with the idea of the same presentation that Paul Heyman was going for with Taz in his ECW title career, which is that big fight, almost mixed martial arts style main event where you've got these two heavyweights in an ultra serious tough as nails main event match and this was kind of their almost them going there for the first time and so i can well imagine taz being good because this is kind of their first foray into that really great stuff i mean the 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 thing that i pulled out the highlight for me was the release over the top german suplex by angle uh on Lesnar. it's just phenomenal like and not only that but just before it there was a brilliant exchange as well of wrestling so this brilliant exchange of wrestling which culminated in that over the over the head release german suplex which was just mm. which is fantastic so i thought it was a great match but just a shade off of classic lovely so before the penultimate inductee to this first class of the rwr match hall of fame it's time to reveal the matches that did not get a single vote that were on the ballot this year and therefore will not be eligible for the vote next time around there were quite a few of them they were chris benoit versus chris jericho from wcw fall brawl 1996 the tag team match between edge and christian and the hardy boys at no way out 2000 ECW One Night Stand 2005 opener between Lance Storm and Chris Jericho. The no disqualification match between Triple H and Brock Lesnar at WWE SummerSlam 2012. The Shield vs John Cena, Ryback and Sheamus from WWE Elimination Chamber 2013. Also from that show, The Rock vs CM Punk for the WWE title. A no disqualification match between Roman Reigns and AJ Styles that took place at WWE Payback 2016. Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn from that very same show. And finally, Roman Reigns versus Kevin Owens in a last man standing match from WWE's Royal Rumble 2021. During 2021, the Random Wrestling Review did what it could to recover matches from as many different years as possible, or rather that our hosts were willing to put themselves through. I will continue to work on Tom and Old Man to go back as far as the 1970s one day. However, that does include some contemporary stuff, and last year meant we covered AEW's all-out pay-per-view. 
The next inductee was the match that was unanimously voted for as match of the night from that show during our review of it and picked up eight votes from our panel. It is the tag team title cage match between the Lucha Bros and the Young Bucks. Okay, so we're on to match four. And it is oh. the match for the AEW oh. World Tag Team Championship steel cage between the Lucha Brothers and the Young Bucks. And I think, Tom, you jumped in and started talking about this, the last match first. So I'm going to have to hand it to old man. <laughs> so it's all out 2019. They have a match. They have a ladder match. And it's fantastic. So I... My expectations for this were high, very high. And to be honest, I've not seen either of them have a bad match right, that I've seen in my limited watching of AEW. I mean, this is unreal how good this is. I, I'll be honest, I, I wish you went through to me because I have no idea how to sum up how good it is <laughs> because I watched it twice yesterday, which wow. I don't think I've ever done. That's amazing. In my life. So I watched it when I was working, in inverted commas, stopped working for this. And then I watched it yesterday evening, about an hour after I finished work, because I'd spoken to a young Thomas, and then it I couldn't get it out of my head, and I was like, you know, I'm going to watch it again and make sure it was that good. It is sensational. It is just four guys that have incredible trust in each other, that know exactly how to eke every bit of drama out of every flip and kick and choreographed manoeuvre that they do without making it feel choreographed. Like, there are sections in this where people are just waiting to be Hurricane Ryan-ed or cross-bodied or booted in the face. Don't care, because they've got the story behind it. They've got a reason for things happening. They're trying. They're always trying to one-up each other in the match. And there's a, a lovely sequence where they're stood before. You've got alternate members as if they're in a square and they start with a punch and then they punch each other in turn and then they do slaps and then they go kicks and it's just brilliantly done i mean the the moment that it turns in particular is where so the young boats get their little shoe out with the uh thumbtacks the five thousand dollar shoe with <laughs> with as jr said with 10 cent thumbtacks on the bottom because uh, Don Callis is on commentary as well. And this is also where Tony Schiavone really steps up in this match, was really where I was like, go on, Tony, he's having a good time. But there is a little sequence that's effectively the Young Bucks finishing sequence. So it's is it BTE, the double knee? Yeah. And I believe it's on Penta. And Ray Phoenix is just down, poor Ray. He's down and out. And they cover him. And then the millisecond before, he just puts a hand and breaks the pin up. And the crowd are like, holy fuck, this is <laughs> happening. This is yeah. continuing. And it is, I believe, the only time watching a wrestling show that I can remember that reaction other than when Shawn Michaels kicked out the tombstone at WrestleMania 25, <laughs> where all of a sudden, so obviously we were there, the crowd just, everyone was just off their feet and they were like, oh my God this is carrying on this is going to be the best thing ever and you know what i was fracking me brains last night after i watched it and we watched an absolutely belting tag team match between the undisputed era and um the two bold lads mm. and this blows out of the water and that was fantastic and i was like i don't think i've ever seen a better tag team match putting in the steel cage absolute genius six stars in the tokyo dome 
Or in the front garden. Lovely old job. <laughs> it's one of those matches that as you're watching it, you're like, this is this is something. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, this is something. This is this is beyond that. This is awesome gets gets bandied around far too easily these days. This mm. is the sort of match that, that should be reserved for. It's absolutely phenomenal. Like you said, old man, like, you're right when the the match turns when they when they throw in the five thousand dollar Air Jordan with the thumbtacks on. The bit where Pentagon kind of sacrifices himself to get the kick mm. rather than than Phoenix getting it is is just that kind of that kind of little bit of storytelling that I think like maybe a few years ago that the young bucks weren't necessarily capable of doing in their matches they are outstanding heels outstanding there's moments in the matches where I'm like these fucking cunts can't win this match <laughs> I and I know I know that it's I know that it's you know predetermined I know we know like they know who's going to win but I'm sat there willing the Lucha Bros to win because they're so good. I loved their entrance. I thought their entrance is brilliant. Them coming out with the Aztec kind of headdresses on mm. with the with the wrappers, I thought was brilliant. Oh, what's his name? Um, cunt on commentary, Don Callis. Yeah, uh, we'll come back onto him later, but he's such a dickhead as well, and he's brilliant in the role. Added another layer to it with him being on commentary. I loved the spot when Ray Phoenix came off the top of the cage because there's just a bit. If you notice as he's coming off, because I was I watched it for the first time, I thought that's a bit weird because he hits all three of them. He hits the Young Bucks and he hits Penta and Penta gets straight back up and I was like, that doesn't make any sense and then if you watch the replay of it Penta takes just a step back just before Phoenix hits the Young Bucks he takes a little step back removes the impact from him and then he's able to get up and do his thing I thought it was just an absolutely phenomenal match it starts off hot there's that bit as well just prior to um prior to uh, Ray Phoenix coming off the top rope when I've got no idea how he does it but I think it's Nick Jackson manages to almost fly up the cage yeah. Yes. yes. Absurd. Yeah. Absolutely absurd how quickly he gets up there. And, and that in itself is just a tremendous act of impressive athleticism, taking away anything else from the rest of the match. Just that, after being in the match for like probably about 15 minutes at that point and going all out for, for that amount of time with no real respite was just an impressive act of athleticism. And I thought it was genuinely one of the best matches I've ever seen. I don't know how else to describe it other than that. I think I, I, think I have to agree. I think that it was one of those matches and they very very rarely happen i'm not even sure i can remember the last time it happened where i'm literally stood up at moments put it this oh, way right is it, like, is it like the time that you boys were playing fifa and the game was so intense <laughs> that you had to stand up yeah pretty much sometimes i can't contain that kind of uh, excitement it was similar to for example this won't mean a lot to every many people but as you both know i'm a big fan of cycling and this summer mark cavendish managed to win four stages of the tour de france but the first one in particular was extremely emotional because he hadn't won one in five years and he had to come back from basically it looked like he was going to retire last year and he came out of nowhere to win this the first stage of the tour de france whilst that was happening i was literally stood up shouting at my screen come on come on fucking do it come on like i was just super intensely emotional about him winning it and when he did i just went mental i just like jumping up and down all over the um, living room it was kind of like that i was kind of like in front of it like come, like seriously kick out like you've got to kick out like and i think it was weird i was thinking about this show on sunday before it happened and i was thinking to myself they have to lose this match the young bucks have to lose mm. the titles here they have been such dicks for such a long time we know that kenny omega is not going to lose the main event so they have to lose because if they don't, it's just going to get like one of the big problems with the NWO, for example, was they just won all the time. They just kept winning. And I was just like, they they really do need to lose this this match. So it was also in the back of my mind that 
like not only was it kind of an emotional thing because of the way they'd been acting in the in the weeks building up to this but also then the way that they told the story of penta standing in front of ray phoenix and kind of that the emotion of that that pulled you in but also that that booking kind of part of it where i was like if they make a mistake here and don't have penta and ray phoenix win that's a bad decision that's a really bad decision i was like they, to make this a perfect match they have to win so i was kind of in the midst of the match thinking this is so amazing but if they don't win it's gonna be all for naught it's just not gonna be yeah. the right it's just not gonna end the right way so the fact that they did was phenomenal and what they did brilliantly is they did that as you said old man they took it to that point where you're basically in despair the match is done they've done the the double knees and you're like oh it's over because we've seen that as well so many times on you know in their previous matches mm. and then for Ray Phoenix just to sort of reach out and push him off and as you say everyone just went mental and it was such a shock it's early and I've only watched it once so it's it's, it's not I don't want to give an instant reaction in that respect but it's up there it's definitely up there with one of the best matches I've ever seen you said Tom that the young bucks weren't perhaps capable of this a few years ago I'm not sure that that's true but they didn't often do it they didn't often tell the stories they used to be quite often for example the, the matches I've seen them in were in New Japan where they in opening junior heavyweight tag team matches with other teams that do yeah. similar things and so they weren't about the stories it was more just this what they were they were put on to do the flippy stuff basically here they told a phenomenal story incredibly emotional brilliantly done proper like dick heels that no matter how good they are you can't even bring yourself to want them to yeah. win or to cheer for them like to be that good and to be that hated is almost impossible in today's wrestling world it's it is really really hard to do i mean just see the reaction to for example Adam Cole, he's effectively been a heel for the best part of the last three or four years, but still gets a massive reaction. It's really hard to be that hated when you're that good. And they managed to do it. And it was, yeah, it was phenomenal. I was just blown away. I think, as I say, I'm tempted to say it's one of the best matches I've ever seen, too. Certainly the best tag match I've ever seen. Just a quick note, so you forgot to mention the Canadian Destroyer off the top rope, <laughs> which is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, because I don't know how, uh, I believe it's uh, Penta does it on Nate Jackson. Don't know how he doesn't kill him. Still can't figure out, because Excalibur says, he's like, oh, look at the impact. And you can hear it in his voice. He's like, oh, my God. He's like, he's killed him. No, nah, he's fine. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Alright, don't worry about it, lads. When, when Canadian destroyer off the top rope is not the talking point from a match, you know it's a good one. Yeah, so you've got that. And then old Raymond goes up the ramp with the gentleman who's with them, whose name I can't remember, uh, Alex Abrahantes, who's like the cheerleader, who does a phenomenal job on the outside, especially when there's the kick out that we talked about and getting the crowd going. But there's a the lovely moment where Penta, who is bleeding like a stuck pig, yeah. to use the thing. And I'm assuming the reason that this happens is that his kids are upset. So they get his kids out of the crowd. He's like waving them down and they get them out and then they go back. It was just lovely. It's just really that kind of shit. I don't really go a lot for because I feel like it's a bit cheap sometimes when it's done poorly. It was beautifully done. Wonderful stuff. More of this, please. I've come. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've made it all the way to the final inductee of the night. Thanks to everyone who has listened today. And of course, thanks to our panel of 12 who submitted their votes for this Hall of Fame. A special thanks to Tom and Old Man, who were my co-hosts for pretty much all of our episodes during 2021 and featured on each of the matches covered today. 
The final match then to be inducted was the only one to manage nine votes from our panel. It was the opening bout from WrestleMania 30 and saw Daniel Bryan face Triple H for the right to compete in the main event for the WWE title. This match doesn't start until 35 minutes into the show, so that certainly has to be the longest you've had to wait for the first match at WrestleMania. It is between Daniel Bryan and Triple H and is for a place in the main event alongside Randy Orton and Batista for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. This one, as I say, goes 26 minutes longest match on the show and daniel bryan wins with a running knee at the culmination of the match tom let's start with your thoughts on it oh it's such a good match it is the best match on the card spoiler alert for my review later but it is it's so good this is everything about it this is triple h's last good match in there i can't think of any that he's had since then well maybe tied up with the tag team match with Shawn michaels against the brothers of destruction <laughs> in, the, uh, in, the, in saudi arabia but it, it is so good daniel bryan is so unbelievably over in a way that we hadn't seen for an incredibly long time and haven't seen since as well there's no one has been over the thing it helps the the, the the yes the yes chant and the movement it gives you a visual kind of representation of how over he is because literally or over that is because you can see everyone in the crowd doing it and it's phenomenal um triple H is brilliant stephanie mcmahon is magnificent on the on the outside throughout the entire match regardless of the the fact that she's dressed absolutely nuts. I don't know what's <laughs> going on there. She doesn't get involved in the match at all. She's just constantly there. It's on the outside, just taunting him, which is just so good. There's a, there's a bit in it where like um where he, something happens. I can't remember what like I can't remember what movie. So she just starts doing this really patronising yes chant outside the outside the ring, and the crowd are just oh they're full of piss and vinegar at that point. It's so good that the end of the match is done. That the the way the the way the, the kind of finish happens, and it's just a great a great match. It is indeed. Oh, man. I echo what Tom said. So I put down that Stephanie McMahon is dressed as a sexy Colonel Sanders. That's, <laughs> that's basically what I... Let's get back to start. The video package is phenomenal because it, it does what all these video packages should do. It just condenses everything down lovely. And the MVP in this match is... Stephanie, I think. And that is incredibly high praise given what goes on in the ring. It starts with Triple H's entrance. It's such magnificent shittery, isn't it? It's like some of his entrances have quite rightly been a bit, uh, like we mentioned the Terminator entrance the other week. Like, they don't always hear, but this is just magnificent. I mean, the crowd, like you said, Tiggy, at the start of this match, it's 35 minutes gone. There's an hour and three minutes by the time they end. If I was in the crowd, I would have been fucked. <laughs> I would have been absolutely fucked because it is nonstop. They get everything absolutely perfect. Like Daniel Bryan has like kind of like a little hot moment and Triple H clotheslines him out of his stupid little furry boot things, which I really don't understand. I don't understand the furry boot things that Daniel Bryan's wearing, but the crowd dead instantly. You know, there's absolutely no way that Triple H is winning this. Regardless of how far it's gone, like, you know, something is happening and Daniel Bryan is going to be in this main event but they made, they made me believe seven years later and they got me invested. And the finish is, is incredible because it comes from nowhere. And it's quite rare. I can remember watching this. I think we watched it together, all three of us, <laughs> with a couple of other friends. And I can remember at the time just thinking how brilliant it is. And also Daniel Bryan does his like run and kick thing. Only does it once and beats him so he's instantly like he's protected the finish as well and he's kicked out of the pedigree magnificent 
I can remember at the time, so I think a couple of years before this this happened, saying to, to you guys, I'm sure I said it to you, Tiki, how amazing it would be if Triple H opened a pay-per-view. Yeah. Like that music. Like well, that we were music talking about stuff. it, WrestleMania 25. That's uh, no, right, 20, yeah. 26, sorry, when Triple H fi- faced Sheamus. And we were like, yeah. how amazing, you, I think you did suggest it, it was how amazing would it be if the first match was Triple H versus Sheamus? Because there's no need for it to be later in the show. It's not a particularly important match. It's just one of a number of matches with big names on it. And it, yeah, you're right. It would be perfect to start with that music. Yeah, and it does. And it's just amazing. The one thing I wanted to say about this, I, I imagine this might be something that, you're, that you might touch on, Tinker, because you said you've got a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts about this and a lot of things to say. But what really struck me with this match as well now i think they i think they kind of stumbled into it a little bit in terms of the way it was booked in the way because i don't think they ever did want daniel bryan to ultimately be the headliner asked why would you have got batista back in to be a headliner it wasn't until like post rumble when they obviously decided to change tact and swerve and put it put it on batista but take it into context with the booker team match the build-up to the to the way it happened and with daniel bryan winning is exactly what should have happened with the booker team you know because the, the entire build-up is d- triple h and stephanie and stephanie saying you're not good enough you're not good enough you're not good enough you can't be this person and then he overcomes that adversity and it means that all that build-up has been worth it because he's proved them wrong which is the exact opposite of what happened with the booker t triple h match at wrestlemania 19 yeah and i guess, I guess the difference would be is that in in the case of WrestleMania 19 it was in bad taste here as well as the Booker T one it's also would have been bad booking so yeah. it's bad booking anyway but then in the Booker T sense it was also in bad taste whereas here yeah it's just been bad booking so yeah I do have loads of thoughts about this whole thing because I think it's so I honestly think this is probably the most fascinating WrestleMania possibly ever if I'm honest there's so much to talk about here first of all the thing you were saying about being over Daniel Bryan's more over than anybody else I want to kind of stamp a little bit on that word because I don't think it's the right word because in the past and I think it's been lost a little bit but in the past over was a word used for either popular or hated so if you were a heel and you were over that meant you were massively you had so much heat on you it was unbelievable people don't tend to use it in that context so much anymore but i want to use it because i, I want to kind of t- turn turn it back to the old use because daniel bryan's more popular than anybody has been for such a long time it's not just over cena was massively over just in completely contradictory ways daniel bryan as a baby face is popular and more popular i think than anybody had been for such a long time before this and possibly has ever been since like i don't know if there's been a more popular baby face guy that they are making the main event of wrestlemania than daniel bryan was at this point i also don't think this is the peak of his popularity his peak came about nine months before this at SummerSlam 2013 when he beats John Cena in the main event of that that show and he is so popular and so over in that moment and it's stamped out by Triple H in the aftermath some people will argue that WWE had this sort of master plan to get Daniel Bryan from that point to the main event of Wrestlemania I say that if that's the truth then it's a terribly booked nine months because Daniel Bryan was not as popular by the time he got to Wrestlemania 30 as when he won the title at the end of SummerSlam 2013 what you are trying to do and if you were from that point on planning to have Daniel Bryan in the main event of WrestleMania 30 you would not do so many of the things that they did to Daniel Bryan during that period for example not being able to overcome the challenge of Randy Orton over the next three months on pay-per-view during the autumn you wouldn't have then shifted him sideways into a nothing feud with the Wyatt family 
You wouldn't have had him turn heel for a couple of weeks, uh, regardless of whether you were going to expose that as a ruse later on, because it dented his popularity. You wouldn't have treated him with the kind of throwaway way that you did at the Royal Rumble 2014. It just doesn't fit at all. It's not it's not true. It wasn't a master plan. The reason this happened is because, first of all, Batista was not received well by the vast majority of WWE's fan base. They tried to set him up as a babyface, and that was a massive mistake because the fans just weren't interested in him in that respect at this time in um, history. And also CM Punk walking out on the company the night after the Rumble 2014. We know from Daniel Bryan himself, who spoke about what he understood to be the plans for WrestleMania 30 in, a, in the months leading up to it, was that Daniel Bryan's match was supposed to be against Sheamus for the third time in a row um, at WrestleMania. And, they, and we also know from CM Punk that he had been lined up to face Triple H at this year's WrestleMania. Um, and that was one of the reasons why he walked out, because he didn't want to be in a match with Triple H at the at Mania. We also know that Daniel Bryan has said that he, as far as he understood, when he turned heel, with the Wyatt family that was supposed to be a permanent thing they just made the decision to change it later on because they realized it was it was stupid can we just go back to the best of three matches between Daniel Bryan and Sheamus <laughs> the rubber match that nobody wanted yeah <laughs> totally. like, oh, so that's such a baffling decision and yeah you're right they they stumbled and fell their way into this amazing angle they definitely did. They definitely did. And I said last week when we reviewed WrestleMania 19 that there are no classics on that show. There are three great matches. There are three very good matches. There are no classics. This is a classic in my mind. This match is a classic. It's 26 minutes of absolute quality in front of a raging hot crowd with a clear baby face and a clear heel. Yes, there is some smattering of Triple H chance, but nobody's in question about who the good guy is in this scenario. Not just because of how they portray it in the ring and what's going on outside the ring with Stephanie and the way she's behaving, but also just because you listen to the crowd, you know who they want to win. You can hear who who they're behind in the vast majority of numbers and they do some amazing stuff some great work some absolutely phenomenal crowd control as you said you know bringing them down and then taking them back up and then bringing them down again working through this story of daniel bryan's injured shoulder they're just doing everything this is classic this is absolute classic it's got all the ingredients of a classic match and wwe i give them some credit timed it beautifully in terms of the show because they've just had them follow hogan the rock and austin who else on the entire roster could have done this at this point like you if you'd put out the shield next in their six-man tag match for example as the first match of the show would come nowhere near sustaining the crowd enthusiasm for the next half an hour which is what they do but no they put these guys out and it absolutely does which makes the first hour of the show phenomenal in my view the first hour of the show if you are capable of losing yourself in the in the just surprise and excitement of austin the rock and hogan being in the ring in the first 20 minutes of the show and then you're fully invested in the match which this crowd absolutely was it's an amazing first hour of a show but yeah they didn't mean to get there they didn't mean it to come to this um they just got very lucky that it did so away from the tremendous match and i agree completely with what you've said tinky completely i think we, we all know it i roll with those punches it was lovely so we've got a couple of crowd issues here one person in particular bobby g i don't know who bobby g is but i reckon they're going to be listening through pretty much the duration of this match they are stood up holding this fucking sign that says Bobby G. The disrespect for the people behind. We had this last week with a sign yeah. as well. The disrespect. Fortunately, this match is absolutely amazing. So it didn't detract my enjoyment. But all I could think was those poor fuckers behind who didn't get to experience this, this masterclass 
of a wrestling match because of Bobby fucking G. <laughs> Scum. And also, I've got a question about some merchandise. We've touched on this before. I'm interested to hear especially your opinion on this, Tinky. So I noticed some foam arms, the yes foam arms <laughs> yeah. in the crowd. Where do they sit in the pantheon of shit merchandise for you? They are top notch. I want to get a pair of them. They're fantastic. <laughs> I genuinely think that because at least I think with the Hogan, like it's obviously the Hogan finger was the first one with like the up, up kind of thing. And that, fair enough. And it was very, very popular, I'm sure. Then you had the Austin uh, twist on that, which was the middle finger. Which again makes sense. You're you're not creating just a foam thing for no reason. It's still on your hand. Makes perfect sense. And the same with the arms. Like I get. Like I don't. I don't think they are wearable though. Which is perhaps a. Mm. Which is perhaps a down point of them. But if they had been wearable, I mean, I may may be wrong, but they don't look. They don't look like they are wearable. If they've been wearable, I think they would have been absolutely perfectly understandable twist on the same thing. The the issue I had was with the foam objects that you're holding here like as tom brought up the razor ramones razor and bret hart's heart like they just don't make any sense to me but i i don't mind twists on the original concept you've got arms and you've got fingers why the fuck do you need to buy foam ones you need you can't you can't hold your heart above your head or a little razor blade no one's gonna see it you're talking bollocks thinking <laughs> fair enough no i i accept that i may be and i may be very biased at this point and that's what i was kind of trying to get to actually is that objectivity for me on this show is very difficult because the daniel bryan journey for me wasn't just something that started with the SummerSlam before it had actually been the reason i got back into wrestling with daniel bryan in in certainly into wwe because from almost from day one when he showed up on nxt as the miz's kind of rookie there was an interest in him and again this is where i think wwe sometimes are able to get away with the idea that they planned all this because even in that first day they are on that theme of trying to bury daniel bryan and the sense that the miz is there to kind of make him look less than he than he actually is trying to do down the things that he has done prior to coming to the wwe but also i wrote a fairly fairly long piece for it was before i was even doing anything for wrestle talk i'd written something for some uh website which i think is called cult of whatever now it was called something else in the day maybe wrestling 101 or something and it was about daniel bryan's rise about two or three months before or maybe a month before SummerSlam, where i basically went into some detail about how wwe had effectively done nothing to help daniel bryan reach the level of popularity he had managed to that point and yet daniel bryan had turned everything they'd given him all the crap they'd given him for the previous two three years into gold nearly every single time there was the whole aj lee business where he was basically the butt of the joke at the end of it where basically aj lee hadn't said yes to his proposal there was the shameless what 20 second victory or less uh the previous wrestlemania there was all the stuff even team hell no it was just comedy stuff with kane where where they turned it into gold but in lesser hands it would have been forgotten about in like a in a few weeks time and i just so i was really invested in daniel bryan's journey through this period because i just thought he had almost been the antidote to the way wwe had presented so many wrestlers in the past in a way that wasn't of use to them wasn't good for their overall build or the way that they were trying to portray those people daniel bryan just excelled at turning it into something worthwhile something valuable and almost by sheer force of will he made people care about him in a way that i don't think we've seen hardly at all ever but certainly um in the last 10 15 years very few people have been able to do it the way daniel bryan did no the only the only thing that gets even gets close is kofi yeah when he yeah when he won the title and obviously it's daniel bryan who puts him over mm. 
Yeah, a lovely, lovely thing. And then we move on. Straight through hell with a smile. You could be the hero, you could get the gold. Breaking all the records, get 